0: we mm-hmm.
1: How's it going, everybody? This is Chris, and welcome to the new Sunday special series. I might uh, call you all the x lapsed Nation because it's time for some x lapsed in nation Yeah, it's not as, uh, done not roll off the tongue quite as uh, neatly or as satisfyingly as uh, Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed did, but, uh, it's the best I could do. We're talking about extermination. Uh, We're talking about that mini-series I've been threatening to cover for quite a long time now, so finally we're going to do it. But we're not going to start with the first issue. We're actually going to start with the lead-up to it. A five-part series of shorts, or at least I thought they were shorts. We're going to find out that it wasn't quite a short. But a five-part prologue to Extermination here, which took place in five different issues of X-Men comics from the summer of 2018. So... Countdown Extermination appeared in X-Men Gold No. 27, X-Men Blue No. 27, X-Men Red No. 5, Astonishing X-Men Volume 4 No. 13, and Cable No. 159. Now, we'll get the credits out of the way up front here, because we're going to talk about a lot of stuff that led up to this, but let's get the credits out of the way. These are all written by Ed Brisson, with art by Oscar Basildoie, or Basildoir. Uh, maybe I got it right one of those times. Colors, Eric Arsheniger, Letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna, Travis Lanham, Corey Petit, and Clayton Cowles. Our usual bunch. Edits, Robinson, Shan, and White. Cover price, I mean, for, for the issues that they're in, $3.99 each. And these went on sale from May 2nd through July 18th of 2018. So what is this and how did we get there? Well, we got to go back in time a little bit here. We got to talk right after Avengers vs. X-Men. Now, that's a time that uh, the X-Men got jobbed out to the Avengers, and it ended with Cyclops becoming Dark Phoenix, killing Professor X, among other things. But for our purposes today, we're going we're gonna to focus on that. Because of that, Beast Hank McCoy, he decided to do something very, very stupid. And what he did is he brought the original five X-Men from, well... Back in the past, maybe it was the 60s, maybe it was just 10 years ago, who knows. But he pulled them back from the past because he wanted to basically talk Cyclops off the precipice. Cyclops was kind of insane at this point. And this also was the entry of Brian Michael Bendis into the X-Men books. Which filled many an X-Fan with a little bit of trepidation. (laughs) Now the thing about Bendis here, I'm a fan of the guy. I am a fan of the guy. To an extent, to a point here Because, uh, I feel like Bendis, he starts a lot of his projects With a sort of, like, humbleness Alright, I mean, it's Little changes, you know Um, kind of low-key Maybe not with the Avengers But, I mean, with things like Daredevil Even Ultimate Spider-Man Just there was a humbleness to it, a uh, an earnestness Even his, you know, most recent stuff His Superman stuff It started Kind of humble Um, That, unfortunately, erodes to just breaking as much stuff as he's allowed to get away with before jamming onto another property. Okay, this is kind of the M.O., this is the pattern of behavior that we've established here for Mr. Bendis and uh, what he has contributed to uh, a shared universe. So, a lot of people were nervous. I was also nervous when he shifted over from the Avengers, because, I mean, the Avengers were the straw that stirred the drink, whether I liked it or not. And a lot of that was due well, a lot of that was due for to a few reasons here. Uh, Marvel was pushing the hell out of the Avengers, and also Bendis's writing was, was you know, carrying the load. Now, I often say that Bendis is a fine writer. I just said I, I probably own ninety percent of what he's put out in as far as superhero you know content. I I, I read a lot of his stuff. And I really don't mind him playing within a shared universe or masterminding big events because he's proven that he can do such a thing. But when he laser focuses on something that I'm very passionate about, like the X-Men, like Superman, I start to sweat. And in both instances, the X-Men and Superman, I read his first few issues and I decide, eh, nothing to worry about here, everything's going to be great. And then I read a few more and realize that my initial fears were more right than I could have ever expected. Suddenly, everybody in the book has the same exact voice and starts behaving in story-facilitating and often out-of-character ways. You know, people used to poke fun at Chris Clamont because uh, he had this insistence on using the strong female character, the strong female protagonist. Uh, if you check out any old old like fan mags or industry mags, Amazing Heroes, stuff like that from the '80s, it's like they were always making fun of Claremont for that. It's like uh, it's like they'd they'd mention a new character and it'd be like somewhere Chris Claremont saying, "Is there a reason this couldn't be a female?" You know, they'd be making fun of him for his for his own tropes, right? Now Bendis has a similar but different tick in that he, all of his characters devolve into nothing more than snark bots. You know, just blank nothings of characters who exist only to be snarky and sassy toward one another. You know, truth be told, when Bendis was announced as coming on to Superman, I was a lot more worried about how he'd write Lois than Clark. If I only knew how badly he'd mangle them both, I'd probably be a little bit, uh... Well, I, I you need to you need to be optimistic right and you know if I get into my own head I, I'll never be so I was worried about Lois lo and behold she's a snark bot she's turned into a passive aggressive sarcastic sounding board and that's not characterization now another thing about this uh, bringing the original five from the past here the time disparity uh, you know the Marvel Sliding Timescale didn't always work here. I mean, for some of the asides that we'd have uh, to work, we'd have to believe that not only are the original five just the younger versions of the actual five, but that they were literally pulled from the 1960s. There was culture shock explored regarding things like music, TV, even people carrying bottled water, which shouldn't be... Like quite as jarring for these kids Considering they were, at most 10 to 15 years younger than their counterparts Right, so If this was in 2012 Then, I mean, they were pulled From 2002 We were already drinking bottled water then Right, and I mean, it's kind of an Impossible situation, right You play the cards you dealt And comics, you know Whether we like it or not, they're about as closed A system as we're going to get in Consumable Entertainment We, you know, comics enthusiasts, we know these characters are both the younger versions of the current-day characters and also are rooted in where they came from in real time, which is to say, the 1960s. We, we get it, right? I mean, folks listening to this show get it. But heaven help anyone from the outside who might have been hornswoggled into trying this book out, because they'd be like, what is this? How old are these characters? If if they don't know what bottled water is, does that mean that Cyclops or Gene or, or Beast... Well, Gene was dead, but Beast is like 75 years old? Of course not. You know, it's it's weird. I mean, that's not anybody's fault. It's just something that is, right? Now, I followed along with both volumes of all new X-Men. The first one was Bendis, then there was a one that was written by Dennis Hopeless. And the further we went, the more that question loomed over our heads. And that question is, when the hell are they going back to where they came from? Right? I mean, this isn't just an X-Men problem. This isn't even a Bendis problem. But the comics industry never seems to know when it's time to pull the plug on something. And so we could have, and perhaps should have, had a tightly written year-long story arc but instead it turned into a bloated, six-year, mostly directionless, character-breaking and overexposing exercise in diminishing returns. Bendis seemed to realize that, hey, outside of Gene, who became a snark bot, he didn't care about the rest of the characters. He didn't care about them the way they were, so he had to change them. Cyclops would go off and join his father in space. He'd get his own series out of it. Beast started studying alchemy Angel got these weird glowing fiery wings Bobby was told that he was gay by Gene Grey So if we had to make these changes to these characters What was the point in the first place? I mean if you gotta do it You bring them up, you tell the story, you send them back Six years is just too damn long Especially when it involves characters who sort of kind of need an endgame They're in the way, they're inconvenient They're duplicates in many cases here And and they've been changed to the point where they hardly resemble the characters that they were So we're going to change them and, And, I mean, we know that they're not from our dimension That was established, but we didn't know that then But you have these total changes in character And then you send them back in time And what happens to our current-day characters? Very, very weird stuff here. Let's jump ahead to X-Men Blue, okay? otherwise known as the book that, after 30 years of X-Men fandom, finally sent me running for the hills. And much, if not all of that, was due to the portrayal of the time-displaced Original Five. Now, Cullen Bunn was the writer of that series. And to me, I really can't say too much about the guy. He's written a lot of books that... Really haven't impressed me much Off the top of my head The only thing I can think of from him That I really, really dug Was a Green Lantern Corps miniseries From right before Rebirth Really thought that was some good good work there But I tell you, Colin Bunn trying to write dialogue In a Bendis way I mean, that's Ajita Right there, that's not uh, The snark The over-reliance on snark, you guys This was just Too much Snark should not be the only thing that defines a character, much less an entire team. Sure they're teenagers, right? We know that. But come on, this was tough to read, too tough for me in fact. I hated these characters who had devolved so much over just a handful of years. When they when they first came back to the present or when, not to the back to the present when they came to the present, there was a novelty there. But they, they changed these characters so much And I, I just couldn't do it anymore So I went away I dropped the, the X-Books For the first time ever I dropped them from my pull list you know, The first months went by Where I didn't have a new X-Men book In my house And yeah, I lost sleep over it It's you know kind of sad to say, but it's true I just couldn't do it anymore These characters were not recognizable to me So I went away But then Marvel Legacy happened. Now, this was Marvel's answer to the DC Rebirth Initiative, which a year earlier reinvigorated and re-energized so many lapsed fans of DC Comics. We were told that Legacy characters would be coming back. Legacy numbering would even be coming back. This would be the return to everything that we loved about Marvel Comics. Only it wasn't. Um, It was a half-hearted outing uh, that... In name only, chased people like me who had finally walked away. They were coming for me, and they weren't delivering what they what they said they were going to. Now, Legacy kicked off with a series of Marvel Generations one-shots, teaming classic characters with their current iterations, it caused me to raise an eyebrow. Now, the X Men's contribution to this was an issue that had the time displaced Jean Grey do some phoenixy stuff. To me, it was underwhelming and half-hearted. In other words, it was original recipe Marvel Legacy. Marvel Legacy number 1 came out, a one-shot, an oversized disaster of an issue that uh, I didn't even bother to order from DCBS, but they sent me a copy anyway. Now that happens from time to time. I'm guessing there were incentivized variants or something on this that led to them over-ordering on this issue to the point where they literally had to give them away. And so, I had it. And since I had it in my lap, I decided to give it a shot, see if it was going to possibly deliver on its promises. And, um, I mean, it's a slight exaggeration, but I barely recognized any of the characters in this thing. Which further cemented my take that Legacy was nothing more than a half-hearted Me Too to DC's rebirth. Which itself in hindsight was half-hearted as well i felt like the more i read about legacy the less interest i had in it from everything from like the voodoo math marvel was using in order to resume legacy numbering at or near a milestone issue for damn near every single book to the fact that nothing really seemed to change outside of marvel utilizing you know retro looking house ads and trade dress I was still intrigued to see how the X-Men would fare in this new legacy landscape. Would this be a return to form? Would we drop those color books and go back to Uncanny and, you know, the the legacy books? This is Marvel Legacy, right? Well, no, to both. But oddly enough, in the Blue Book, there was a callback to the cross-time caper that made me... kind of salivate. Uh, The team was going to visit different points in X-History... And the future Including teaming up with the original Generation X And the X-Men of 2099 I tried again And was chased off again Uh, Now Marvel Legacy Didn't last long Again because Marvel's heart really wasn't in it And I'm projecting I'm projecting And so what came next was Marvel Fresh Start This is an announcement That caused many a rolling of eyes Including my own And if the Marvel wikis are right, and I mean, who knows if they are, but if they are, then the Dawn of X books that we're looking at in X-Lapsed are actually still part of that Fresh Start initiative. Which, if that's true, does that mean that Marvel's actually managed to hold course for like three years now? <laughs> I mean, that's that's gotta be a record in this t- in this day and age. I should probably look for some wood to knock on. Anyway. Now, the book we're going to be discussing over the next several weeks here on the Sunday special, Extermination, is often cited as the X-Men's foray into the fresh start landscape. And we're going to cover that countdown just a little bit. But first, some of my preconceptions about this series. Now, my timeline, my personal timeline, is a little bit conflated. Coming back when I did, post hoxpox all I knew was that there was a bunch of stories that sort of kind of set things straight. And initially, I was okay with just acknowledging that and not paying it too much mind, you know? Unfortunately, I'm still me. And I still I have this weird need to know and to be able to talk about everything that happened. And as we talked about here on this channel, I kind of mangled extermination with previous Sunday special series, Major X. I, I kind of mangled them together. I assumed that Major X was going to be revealed as Kid Cable. Well, I was right if we rearranged those words, right? I mean, he wasn't Kid Cable. He was Cable's kid. So then where in the hell did Kid Cable come from? Well, we're, we're going to find out during this series. Also, where did the Time Displace Original 5 get off to? Well, we're going to learn about that, too. At least I think we are. It's funny. Um, not really funny in the haha ha sense. But, uh, a little story about my introduction to extermination Um, I was running around town back in 2019 When I was first, you know, officially back in the ex-fandom fold I decided I'd backfill on everything I'd missed Because it's kinda my MO Uh, and I was taking advantage of some killer Black Friday deals Um... Which we didn't get this year uh, Before the world grinded to a halt uh, Our local shops had these just amazing Black Friday sales Often marking down most of their stock to a dollar I mean, everything on the six-month wall A dollar Every back issue under that's marked at under $10 is a dollar Amazing stuff here And uh, boy, I <laughs> I went to town and, uh, and so I got caught up on, on the uncannies that I skipped The Rosenberg stuff that I didn't get uh, even Hawks and Pox, the stuff that I didn't, the issues that I'd missed of that, got them all there. Uh, got some blues, golds, blacks, reds, everything I sat on out on. And I also excitedly grabbed this one shot called X-Men The Exterminated, which, in my head, I thought that was the entirety of this extermination storyline. It was not. <laughs> Indeed, it was something of an epilogue, and it wasn't all that great. But we will. We will cover it in about a month. Now, over the course of the past year and change, I've picked up all five issues of Extermination, as well as a trade collection that I found uh, really, really cheap. Haven't read them yet, but that's what this show's for. So we're going to Extermination. we got to get there, though. So what is Countdown to Extermination? Well, in doing my research to put all the pieces in place for this Sunday special series. I learned that there's a series of what I assume to be backup stories called Countdown to Extermination, which leads up to the event miniseries proper. Now, in the advertising, I'm going to read you some quotes here. We're told, quote, Pick up these titles for exclusive post-credit scenes by Ed Brisson and Oscar Bazaldua. Basil-dua. X-Men Gold Number 27 by Mark Guggenheim, David Marquez, and Geraldo Borges, uh, May 2018. X-Men Blue, number 27, by Cullen Bunn and Marcus Toe, May 2018. X-Men Red, number 5, by Tom Taylor and Mahmoud Azrar, June 2018. Astonishing X-Men, number 13, by Matthew Rosenberg and Greg Land, July 2018. Cable, number 159, by L- Lonnie Nadler, Zach Thompson, and Herman Peralta, July 2018. Then we get a headline, Witness the Final Days of the Original X-Men. 20 years into the future, MutantKind is on the verge of extinction, and we promise you the X-Men will not survive. But how will this nightmare come to pass? And is it too late to prevent it? Find out in these issues as we count down to extermination. Easy peasy, right? So, even though we're in the midst of packing, packing up house for a move, I spent a good hour digging through my stack of long boxes to procure the five countdown issues in question. Truth be told, three of them, the color books, they were all in the same box. It was actually the cable issue that took me forever to friggin' find. So, I had the books, and as I was getting getting down to do my nightly, X lapsed reading, I readied myself for what I assumed to be five short stories. And I figured that together, they'd probably wind up being about 20 or so pages, right? Four per post-credit scene, you know? Well, no, no. It was not that at all. It turns out, each of these post credit scenes were one single page. Hmm, seems hardly worth mentioning, does it? So yeah, we're about to talk about a five-page story right now. Sorry about that. So how about I quit vamping and we just get to it, eh? We kick things off with our first page that appeared in X-Men Gold number 27. And this one starts at the Xavier Institute for Mutant Education and Outreach in Central Park, 20 years from now. Headmistress Kitty Pride is telling the X-Men that, uh, well, all hell is about to rain down on them, and that they're likely about to embark on a suicide mission. And with that, they rush toward a, gr- a group of, what else? Sentinels. And that's it. Now, our second page from X-Men Blue number 27 picks up right where we left off. An older version of the young Jean Grey is hustling some young mutants toward a ship which will, in theory, deliver them somewhere safe. Well, safe is a relative concept in this fiery future, which an older version of the young Cyclops points out. Then, an older version of the young beast, who is mutated into a white-furred, goat-horned critter, is killed while an older version of a young angel looks on. Older versions of the young Cyclops and Jean keep pushing into battle, and that's it. Our third page, from X-Men Red number 5, picks up at Cerebro in Atlantis. C-S-E-A, you see? Get it? Here, the original Jean Grey, as denoted by the horrendously ugly costume they gave her in X-Men Red, and Nightcrawler, among others, are fighting off Sentinels. We get confirmation that everyone back at the mansion is dead. Jean laments that there's nowhere left for them to run. And that's it. Our fourth page, from Astonishing X-Men, Volume 4, Number 13, is back at the Xavier Institute, and the only X-Men left standing are... Dazzler and Warpath. Okay. Uh, There are dead X-Men strewn all over the place here. It looks like the Fall of the Mutants house ad. That one that always... That's a very eye-catching ad there. It looks sort of like that. There's also, like, a wall of sentinels stood on the horizon. Allison and James know that, uh, well... They don't have a single chance in hell of surviving this, but they are X-Men, and they valiantly rush into battle anyway. The Sentinels all raise their palms, and bada-bing, it's like the cover of Uncanny 142. The last two standing are vaporized, and that's it. Finally, our fifth page from cable number 159 starts us off in present day. We're at a cable safe house located somewhere. Now, as he sits there cleaning his Liefeldian Mark 69 rifle and likely preparing to shove a nuclear D-cell battery into his cybernetic left arm, he gets an alert of an incoming time anomaly. Uh Uh-oh. Cable looks closer and cannot believe what he sees. We don't get to see what he sees, but he cannot believe it, and that's it. That's our five pages. We're all counted down. And we're ready to explore the event miniseries proper, which we will... Next time. But first, what did we learn here? Well, first things first, I personally learned something. I learned that post-credit sequences aren't quite what they expected them to be. Um, You know, then again, I don't see the movies, so this reference didn't really get a pop from me. Which maybe begs the question, just who were these for? Are they an attempt to get, like, non- or lapsed X-Men readers to pick up books they ordinarily wouldn't? I mean let's go with that. Let's go with that just for argument's sake here and so I can spin my narrative, right? Let's say you were a non or a lapsed X-Men reader and you shelled out the 20 bucks to grab these five issues which gave you five pages of Countdown to Extermination. Would you be satisfied? Would you be inspired to spend another $25 on the Extermination mini-series? Plus the, you know, the the epilogue, the, the Exterminated? I mean, I'd never try to speak for anyone else but me, but if I had to guess, I'd say no. Uh, Maybe if all five of these pages were put into one book. Or hell, put all five of them into all five. You know, it might be different. But this one-page-per-issue thing? Not my favorite gimmick. And, and I mean, it is a gimmick. Um, And, I mean, I spent an hour pulling these things out of the damn long boxes yesterday, so... It's not anybody's problem but my own. It just is what it is. Now, if you were a current reader to the X-Books, of course, this is a value-added thing. It offered a lot of questions and likely made you interested in getting some answers. I know it did for me, but that might just be because I know where this is headed. Had I been reading this at the time... I mean, how many dystopian X-Men future stories do we need? Right, I mean, on its face, this doesn't look any different from any number of X-Men future stories. Yada yada yada, Sentinels. Yada yada death. Yada yada yada, Last Stand. I mean, this is kind of samey, isn't it? Truth be told, this is a story we've seen just so many times now. A non-or reader might take one look at this and think they're reading a repeat or a reprint. I mean, it feels kind of like that. It's so samey. It's a weird one to kind of put into a vacuum to analyze, isn't it? Uh, as a story, I mean, it's the same as it ever was. I, I can quote our, uh, you know, our theme music here, same as it ever was. As a lead-in from a sales and gimmick perspective, well, since I'm currently cursed with hindsight, I'm not sure I can say how well it worked. As a lead-in purely from a storytelling approach, well, again, I can only speak for myself. Uh, I'm looking forward to finally learning what extermination was all about. So I'm kind of biased toward, you know, the positive. I look forward to hearing what others think, and I'm hopeful that some people listening have read all of this. Maybe some others are just f- are following along with the show, and maybe some others are just going to be listening along. Please let me know your thoughts on this series as we work our way through, because I'm very interested in seeing how this uh, how this all landed for everybody at different uh, stages of their fandom and different uh, levels of uh, X hyphen pertise, right? But that is where we're going to leave it for today Um, I think I've yammered on enough Spent about a half hour talking about five pages Which might be a personal record But uh, I'd love to hear from anybody who has thoughts on this story And these five pages that we covered here Uh, If you were, maybe you were tantalized by these five pages Maybe you were turned off by these five pages Maybe you didn't even know these five pages existed Because as of a few days ago, I didn't know they existed But I just want to hear your thoughts so, you can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or at uh, Weird Comics History at gmail.com. You can check out blog posts and show notes over at Chris's On Infinite We've also got xlapsed. Chris is on Infinite you can chat us up on Facebook about, well, anything you want, where our little group is 90s X Men. And you can listen to the complete Chris and Reggie audio archives at Chris and I want to thank you all for sharing your time with me on uh, this Sunday or any day you listen to it. It really, really means the world to me. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to Episode 2 of x where we are going to continue, or actually, we're going to begin looking at the Extermination miniseries, as the first episode of this program was the massive five-page countdown to Extermination, which I somehow still spoke about for about a half hour, but, uh... Let's get into this one here. We are going to break into the miniseries proper, the event miniseries proper, with Extermination Number no. 1, which had an October 2018 cover date. The story is called well, Extermination Part 1 of 5. I guess it's fitting. Written by Ed Brisson with art by Pepe Lorez, Colors, Mardi Grasia, Letters, VCs, Joe Sabino. Edits, Robinson Shan, White, Sobolski. Cover price, $4.99, and went on sale August 15th. ...of 2018, which is a lot longer ago than I thought it was. It, it, time is just a, a very weird, wobbly thing of late, isn't it? Now, let's get into the story. We pick up sorta-kinda where we left off with at least one of our Countdown 2 pages from last episode. Here we are, with 20 years into the future, and we're at the Xavier Institute for Mutant Education and Outreach in Central Park... That reminds me, where was Professor Xavier during these blue and gold years? Was he was he still dead from a uh, Avengers vs. X-Men? Was was he an Avenger at this point? Was he a uh, was he locked in a secret shield bunker? I don't know, maybe all three. Anyway, what we've got here is a figure in a tattered hooded cloak walking amid the wreckage and destruction. He just so happens to come across an older version of young Cyclops who is dead. And he comments how none of this is right. And I agree. He also blames some old bastard for screwing it all up, suggesting that it's now up to him to fix a mess. This mess. Double-page spread of creds, and we return to comics in Chicago, Illinois, present day. There's an anti-mutant rally, nothing we haven't seen a trillion times before, and we'll probably see a trillion times again. Now, these nutcases are all acting a fool because there's a pair of young mutants present who are really freaking them out. They are kind of freaky. It's actually those creepy, gray-skinned, black-eyed kids, Maxime and Manon, and this would be their first appearance. I remember asking, where did these guys come from? Well, here they are. Now, to really drive home the ignorance of these demonstrators, they're also expressing that they have a problem with the fact that these children speak French. We can't just go halfway, can we? We have to go full-on xenophobe here, which might suggest that these demonstrators are just flat-out bigoted than mutant-phobic. I don't know where I'm I'm going with this, but it just felt like an unnecessary addition here. I mean, they could have been bad enough people just hating mutants. I don't know. Whatever the case, the X-Men Blue team are here on the scene to pull the rescue. The Time Displaced Original Five are joined by Bloodstorm, Bloodstore Wait, wait, wait. It couldn't be. Could it? Did did, did X-Men Blue really dip into the friggin' Mutant X dimension? Are we talking Mutant X on my show? Mutant X on my... I don't... uh, uh, we'll we'll put a pin in that. Anyway, the Tots are rescued and brought back to Central Park for examination. There, Dr. Cecilia Reyes gives them the once-over and a lollipop each, and also gives them a clean bill of health. Young Jean adds that she entered their minds With their permission, of course Because Young Jean always gets permission first Right? Yeah uh, Well, she found nothing wrong with them either So it looks like they are healthy in body and mind We jump to a little bit later And we join Young Scott and Bloodstorm Who are out on a date at some Thai restaurant They talk about how they're both displaced people, right? They're not from this world, this universe, this era And, uh, they also talk about how that shouldn't necessarily preclude them from attempting to enjoy each other's company. Now, you see, young Scott here is a bit skittish about becoming romantically entangled with the young, vampiric Aurora Monroe. And in case the name didn't, you know, give it all away, Bloodstorm is a vampire version of Storm. Maybe from the Mutant X dimension, of which the uh, less said, the better. Um... Now, the conversation is cut short by the arrival of Ahab and a pair of hounds. Well, that was unexpected. Uh, They appear to be here to take out Cyclops, but they're going to be in for a fight. Now, Scott doesn't know who these characters are. He doesn't know Ahab, he doesn't know hounds, but he does recognize the facial markings of the hounds. Because, you know, he does know Rachel, and she has those things. From here, we get several pages of a fight. Ahab lunges for Scott with his uh, spear drawn But Bloodstorm, after taking a panel or two to straighten her mohawk Jumps in the way She is run through with Ahab's spear and she dies Cyclops absolutely loses his stuff here And just unleashes a hellacious optic blast Which nails the bad guys and pretty much levels the Thai restaurant that they were eating at Ahab and company, they bug out They're done they leave Scott all alone with Aurora's body and the smoldering remains of the tie joint. He picks her up, calls in a code blue to Jean, and then heads for home. Elsewhere, Bobby is seeing a play. I think it's Hamilton. That's the one that everyone goes gaga for because it makes them feel like historically smart, right? I think that's what he's saying. Whatever the case, he gets a psychic call from Jean. Code blue, there is something up with Bloodstorm. And so Bobby ices up and heads toward home. On the way, however, we can see he's being watched by our mystery man, the man in the tattered hooded cloak. He's watching him. Bobby's zipping by on his ice slide, which suddenly gets blasted to bits. Then there are several more blasts in Bobby's direction. Now Iceman looks around to see who's shooting at him, but can't, can't figure it out. Can't see who this is. But then he sees Cable who gives him the whole come-with-me-if-you-want-to-live spiel. Iceman whips up a bunch of ice golems to confuse his attacker, you know, if he's going to shoot ice figures, it might as well be fake ones, right? But it's all for naught, because Bobby gets blasted. We jump back to Xavier's, where Scott bumps into Rachel Gray and tries to get more information on these hounds. As mentioned, he did recognize their facial markings, which are the same as Rachel's, who was also a hound. Rachel reveals that the man that they're now after is Ahab, and of course he is the one responsible for making her a hound in the first place. Scott asks how he might find this Ahab, and then Young Beast pops his head in and mentions that Bobby ain't back yet, and he can't be raised on his communication device. So let's go back to Bobby here. He's been blasted, you see, We, we just saw that. Now this tattered, hooded, cloaked figure walks towards him, but is attacked and then held down by Cable. The mystery man blames Cable for the time displaced originals being here, messing everything up. Cable asserts that they needed to be here, which I mean, did they really? I mean, I like you Cable, but I'm sorry. I'm sorry. This is uh, I don't think you're I don't think you're right here. Now Cable posits that with everything the time displaced crew learned in the present, they could in theory eventually return back to the past from where they came from with that must much needed knowledge. So that they can be better in the present day, and you know, part of me wonders if that might have been Brian Bendis's original plan for this book, like sort of a way to do an in-story reboot of a handful of characters. And uh, let's put a pin in that. We'll talk about that after we're done with the synopsis. Jump back to Xavier's. Young Jean is hooked up to Cerebro to try and find Bobby. She can find him, but she can't connect. It's almost as though he's been knocked offline, is what she says. She can tell that he's not alone, though. There are two others with him. One is using a psi shield, and the other is Cable. Oh, Warren, uh, Angel, he's here, by the way. He doesn't do a whole heck of a lot but stand around silently, but he's here. So we're getting to see all the original five uh, time-displaced mutants here. Beast asks if Gene might be able to get inside Cable's mind in order to see whatever it is that he's seeing. Jean expresses a little bit of reluctance I mean, I don't know if they're just like Retconning her to be really, you know Super careful with her powers after we saw Several years of her not being I don't know, maybe she learned a lesson Maybe she's growing as a character just in time To be booted off the table I don't know Let's go back to the fight Cable and the mystery man roll around for a bit With our hooded fella getting the better of the exchange Then with Cable On the ground, our mystery man points His gun at him point blank He tells him that the old man has outlived his usefulness, and then kills him. As he walks away, he comments that the old man really should have seen this coming. Whoa, deja vu, right? Huh. Now Cable's death causes tremendous feedback to hit Jean as she's using Cerebro, and she is knocked on her butt. When she recovers, she reveals to the rest that Cable is no more. Cable is dead. Back in the city, our mystery man picks Bobby up and slings him over his shoulder before body sliding by two. Uh-oh. Could this be who I think it? Yeah, of course it is. We know who this is, but let's play along till the reveal, okay? Jump back to Xavier's later on in the day. Jean tells Rachel that Cable is dead. She doesn't react well. After all, he is sort of kind of her brother. Then the real Jean Grey and Nightcrawler bam Finn from the Red Book to check in. Fake Jean tells real Jean that Nathan is gone, and, uh, real Jean reacts kinda coldly. She comments that Cable is, you know, sorta kind to her son, but really doesn't seem to emote. You know, it's very, very point-blank, matter-of-fact. Scott then fills her in on Bloodstorm's passing as well, and Jean just says that whoever did it'll pay, right? Now, Scott assumes that both of these casualties of the issue were at the hands of Ahab. But Kitty, thinking out loud, wonders if maybe there's more than one threat out there. Hmm. Well, we wrap up the issue at an undisclosed location. We could see young Bobby Drake in a sort of containment pod alongside four more empty containment pods. Our mystery man comments that he's got one down and four to go. And we close out with the revelation that our big bad for this issue was, say it with me, Kid Cable. Here he is. This is where he came from. I answers one of my biggest questions from this X-Lapse experiment. Even though we, we kind of knew, it's it's nice to have the uh, it's nice to have the confirmation here and uh, and actually cover the story that he makes his first appearance in. We do wrap up the issue with a missive from Ed Brisson, who is the writer of this book and the series. And uh, one key takeaway from this uh, missive here is the mission statement for extermination here. The one thing they wanted to keep in mind as they put this series together. And it comes down to four words. Your back issues matter. I am on board with that. You know me. I am a huge fan of lore, and the fact that this series will make a conscious effort to make it so everything we've read before actually matters and feeds into what we're doing Hey, nothing but uh, nothing but thumbs up for that. So we will have a lot of fun analyzing the uh, you know the next four issues of this mini series here and seeing what bits and pieces of history that are being uh, played with and uh, perhaps manipulated or just used to serve the story as it uh, continues. So really happy about that. Let's talk about this opening chapter here, which was really good, really good opening chapter here. Um, of course. I am coming into this having the main beat of the issue spoiled. It's not a fault of the issue. It's not a fault of anybody. This was a pretty big reveal. I mean, we've got a whole ongoing series going on right now, which features our big reveal character, right? We do have Cable, one of the best books of the Dawn of X line right now, right? He, This is where the kid came from. And we've also flashed back to this old man Cable death scene a few times at this point, right? Now, that said, plus the fact that I dragged my feet on reading this, like I said, not a fault of the story. And, even with the knowledge, I still very much enjoyed the way this all played out. Gotta say, I was completely ignorant to the fact that Bloodstorm was part of the blue team. Um, but, I mean, and I I give Mutant X a lot of grief and a lot of guff, but I love lore, right? I love lore, and if this is, in fact, the same Bloodstorm as the one from the Mutant X dimension, I'm fine with it. I'm fine with it. I, I'll, I'll still raz Mutant X. I'll still make fun of Mutant X when, when it comes up in conversation. I'll still roll my eyes at it. And I'll still have, you know, some tremors from uh, having had read it. But more lore, more continuity. To me, that's a good thing. And, I mean, the mission statement here. The back issues matter. So, perfect. Perfect, perfect, perfect. Speaking of which, let's look at the other big bad here. Not just Kid Cable. We also have Ahab. Now, I'm not sure if I'm reading too much into this, but here's a hot take from back in the... extremely long ago. Now, when I entered the X fandom, circa 1991 or so, one of the biggest mysteries, not just in X-Men comics, not just in Marvel comics, but in the entire comics industry, was just who the hell is Cable, right? And in letters pages and comic shops on Usenet, uh, speculation was at a fever pitch. And one of the leading theories back then was that Cable was Ahab, which is weird, right? Back in the days of Future Present Crossover, which took place in the X-Book and Fantastic 4 annuals, I think 1990 or so, Ahab was the big bad there. Cable, who was just he was leading the new mutants at the time, he managed to get close enough to Ahab to get a good look at him, and he became very very freaked out. To which Ahab laughed and asked if he uh, saw someone he knew. Now, sure, this could have been that 90s thing where every mysterious new character seems to have history with every other mysterious new character, because we got that a lot. But some of the leading speculation was that Cable would eventually become Ahab. That didn't turn out to be the case. As, if I'm remembering right, a minor character from Excalibur would be revealed as eventually becoming Ahab, but it was definitely interesting food for thought. And I mean, if we're taking comic shop and Usenet rumors into account, his inclusion in this story, which has a heavy cable focus, is pretty neat, right? It's interesting stuff, at least to me. I mean, I can't speak for everybody. Let's talk a little bit about the cable on cable violence here. As mentioned, we've seen a few takes on this scene over the past little while in the dawn of X books. And they're always similar but never quite the same. You know, uh, sometimes the dialogue is slightly different, Kid Cable's cloakedness is inconsistent, but it's really the main beat that matters, right? Kid Cable kills old man Cable. But let's go back to the reasoning for this standoff in the first place. Now, if I'm reading this right, Kid Cable sees what the future will bring should the time-displaced Original Five remain in the present day and would very much like to avoid that future. Old Man Cable's assertion is that the original five needed to come to the present in order to go back and be better people, in order to make the X-Men as a whole better in the present. Let's talk about that. I've long spoken about Bendis having like two or three stock plots. Before I get into it, I'm a Bendis fan. I like much of his work. I own... Almost all of his superhero work And that's a lot of damn books But When Bendis gets stunty, he gets stunty And it comes down to two or three plots First one, everything you thought you knew was wrong Second one, secret identity reveal Third, reboot, relaunch, recycle Right? Part of me now wonders If when Bendis pitched the all-new X-Men Assuming he did And it wasn't an editorial mandate Or a marketing stunt or whatever if it was with an eye toward eventually rebooting the X-Men via butterfly effect. And, I mean, we could get into things like time loops and splinter timelines and whatnot here, but that sort of talk is a little too abstract for me, and it also doesn't serve my narrative or story, so we'll set that aside. So let's look at this. From old man Cable's point of view, they come to to the future, or the present, get some knowledge, go back to the past, right? So let's say all new X-Men happens and it's a one-year storyline, like it probably should have been in any case. Then, say, the young X-Men go back to the past with all the knowledge and go about setting things, you know, quote-unquote, right. That would, or could, in effect, rewrite the X-Men from that point on. And it could have been a very interesting experiment, and as frustrating as it would be for us tenured X-Fans it would have delivered an in-canon rationale for removing some inconvenient bits of X history. I mean, let's consider some of the bigger beats from from even just the Claremont era, the early Claremont era, even some, I guess, Claremont-adjacent stuff here, because it's not his work, and it's actually before he came on. Does the deadly Genesis trip to Krakoa happen, with Vulcan, Sway, Petra, and Darwin? Does that happen? If we know how it ended, do we still do it? Would Dark Phoenix still happen? You know, if the original five know that the Phoenix Force and Gene are two different things, does it happen? If Gene's presumed death doesn't happen, does X Factor happen? Does Scott still meet and marry Madeline Pryor? Is Cable even born in the first place? Cable, the guy who says they were needed here, might be signing his own inexistence warrant, right? I mean, the possibilities are endless, aren't they? Uh, So many opportunities to zig instead of zag. And I wonder where that might have left us in present day had it gone down that way. And I wonder if that might have been part of the impetus for the all-new book to begin with. You know, it is coming out of AVX, where things were kind of nebulous, and it could have been a very, very interesting, uh, a frustrating but interesting thing to do. I mean, if that was a what-if story, and I hate what-if stories. I think what-if stories are the biggest waste of time. But a what-if in this situation, I'd probably read it. As long as it wasn't treated like a throwaway like most of the what-if books are. It'd be like a mutant version of Back to the Future 2, right? Uh, But might still make for an interesting story, even if they just made it a temporary thing. You know, you have this butterfly effect make... The present and the future, even worse for mutants. For for all we know, I mean, there's a lot of a lot of things we can discuss and consider and analyze there, and uh, maybe we'll we'll talk about this more another time. But let's get back to the issue itself here. Um, the art here was wonderful. The art here was amazing. This is our our Hawks art team, if I'm recalling right, and I mean, they didn't just deliver; they over delivered. This was a gorgeous book. I think my only complaint, if I can even call it that, was a uh, real Jean's sort of kind of coldness when she was filled in on everything that had happened during the issue. Very, very matter of fact, which didn't totally sit right with me. Maybe I'm—I don't know. Maybe it's hard to read a tone in you know sequential art. So she just looked very, very matter of fact. Um, overall, I'm really happy to finally be getting around to this story. And I'm also really glad to be able to share it With all of you here And if anyone listening would like to share Some of their what-ifs You know, if the original five were sent back With the knowledge of everything that was yet to come And what would have changed What wouldn't have changed What would have been better What would have been worse Just all your hot takes I'd love to hear them And I would love to share them here on the channel For future discussions So please don't hesitate to reach out With some uh, some far-flung hot takes I- I'd love to hear them and share them But uh I think that's all I got to say about this issue. If you would like to get a hold of me and maybe share some of your ideas, please feel free to do so. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarths.com, also xlapsed.chrisIsOnInfiniteEarths.com. And you can also share your thoughts on our little Facebook group, that is 90s X-Men on Facebook. And you can listen to the entire Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com That's where we'll leave it for this fine Sunday. I'd like to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me today, and I really look forward to hearing some of your thoughts on uh, this issue and some potential fallout had uh, things gone a different way. So, thanks once again, and until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya! we mm-hmm. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode three of X-Lapsed Nation. And, you know, I uh, I try not to date these shows. I try to keep them as timeless as, as possible. But uh, I don't mind telling you all that uh, we're getting this one in just under the wire. Um, the family and I are in the middle of a move, so... Uh, the schedule has just been uh, more of a challenge than usual. It's uh, a, lot of, a lot of plates spinning right now, so... I'm glad I was able to actually attend to this program today and uh, and get it out in time. So let's get right into it. This is Extermination Number no. Two, which had an October 2018 cover date. The story is called, ironically enough, Extermination Part Two of Five, written by Ed Brisson with art by Pepe Larraz, colors Marty Gracia, letters VCs Joe Sabino, edits Robinson Shan White and Sobolski. Cover price $3.99 went on sale August 29th of 2018. Now, we open in a grocery store in Passaic, New Jersey, where one Calvin Rankin, that's the uh, the mimic, if you're nasty, I guess, uh, he's checking for expiration dates on half gallons of milk. He's greeted by Kid Cable, who shoots him right in front of a whole bunch of people. The mimic, who lay unconscious, is told that his services are required and, uh, Yeah, I think that's what we'd call uh, starting off with a bang. We jump over to the Xavier Institute for Mutant Education and Outreach in Central Park, which is a ridiculously long name every single time I say it. There, Scott is having himself a sulk on the steps. In fairness, his would-be girlfriend, Bloodstorm, was just murdered. And since Ahab was looking for him when he killed her, Scott, you know, he blames himself. I can understand that. Now he's joined by Jean Grey, who lets him know that she's here for him if she wants to, to, if he wants to talk, and even if he doesn't, she's still there for him. Oh, and she also will not pry into his mind. And it's kind of funny how she kind of has to mention this with everyone she speaks to now. In all honesty, this was a very nice scene. I liked it a lot. Uh, we jump ahead a little bit to a big, all amalgamated X-Men color guard and adjacent meeting, which. I swear, is all we're ever seeing in these color book era crossovers, isn't it? The meeting, as always, is being conducted by headmistress Kitty. Uh, Shatterstar, he's the last to arrive to the meeting, and it's confirmed to him, and I suppose to us as well, that Cable is 100% dead. Also, Bloodstorm, she's dead too, and oh yeah, young Bobby's missing as well. Uh, they don't know, however, if young Bobby is still among the living. To which, real Bobby suggests that... Should young Bobby die, then he probably would have disappeared, right? Now, real Hank suggests that that's not a definite cause-and-effect situation. Bobby cites that when young Scott was briefly offed during the Battle of the Atom event, and real Scott vanished briefly, he uses that to cite proof of his theory, right? Poor fellow must not know that we've changed editors-in-chief, and we lost Bendis to DC Comics by this point, so anything that happened there, your guess is as good as mine. Kitty then lays out everything the X-Men know at this point in time, which is basically Ahab probably done it all. Now, Ahab, the word Ahab is Rachel's cue to dump a whole bunch of angsty exposition on us. First, she's kicking herself for not realizing that Ahab was returning, you know, since her hound markings have been showing up again. Though in fairness to her, that seems to be something that's usually left to the artist's discretion. Sometimes she has the markings, sometimes she doesn't. It doesn't always signal proximity to Ahab, does it? It's just, sometimes the artists like drawing them, sometimes they don't. Anyway, Rachel knows about the future that Ahab comes from, and yada, 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 yada. Kitty goes about laying out the plan. And it's our our Justice League Justice Society summer special. A.K.A. the very same thing Kitty had the X-Men do during Phoenix Resurrection. You see, we're breaking off into teams, with Naria a MacGuffin in sight, either. Now, that's not all. Each of the four teams that she's splitting the X-Men into will include one member of the time-displaced Original Five. Well, well, the four that are left, right? To protect them. So, okay, you know, that kind of makes sense. If Ahab is after the time-displaced Original Five, then, hey, let's protect them as best we can. Well, young Scott, he gets up and he stomps out of the room. Young Warren runs after him, and they're soon joined by young Hank and young Jean. And, uh, I'm not a big fan of drinking games, but if you, if you did it whenever I said the word young during this episode, I, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry for your, uh, for your liver. Now, Scott, he's ticked off because he feels as though the X-Men are babysitting them. And, well, yeah, they, they kind of are. And, well, yeah, they kind of have been ever since you all showed up in the first place so this is no different than usual. Now, as the kids argue, Jean picks up on some sort of presence nearby. Out of nowhere, Warren is shot, and he's KO'd right off the bat. He's really getting his money's worth being a part of this event, isn't he? You know, he's he shows up. Uh, then, Hank is hit with a Bafo trank dart, which puts him out of action as well. Jean then guides Scott into the park, where she senses the presence. Scott Indiscriminately blasts at some trees And uh, this reveals their aggressor Kid Cable Who Scott immediately recognizes As a younger version of Cable Like straight away Which I don't know I probably would have guessed X-Man myself But what do I know So there's a struggle and a brief argument Over whether these time-displaced teens Should be in present day Then Cable grabs the KO'd Angel And body slides by two Right out of Dodge the rest of the X-Men conveniently arrive on the scene right as Cable's dust begins to settle. The kids explain that they were just attacked by a younger version of Cable, which confuses damn near everyone. Real Jean asks Young Jean to join her at Cerebro for safekeeping. Young Jean ain't wanting none of that. Instead, she wants to head off with the remnants of X-Force. That'd be Cannonball, Domino, Warpath, Boom Boom, and Shatterstar. Later, Young Hank wakes up from his Trank slumber in Real Hank's lab. Real Hank tells Young Hank that they were attacked by Young Cable. You know, since Young Hank was fast asleep at the time of the reveal. Young Hank suggests that Young Cable is acting quite brazenly, to which Real Hank posits that this wasn't a brazen act, but a desperate one. We next shift over to Young Cable's safe house, where it would appear that he's sawing Angel's wings off. Okay, and uh, Kid Cable's going to be a good guy, huh? Mm. Okay, let's jump back to the Xavier Institute for the ending here. Ahab attacks. And so we get a few pages of X-Man on Hound action, bringing us right to the end of the issue, where it's revealed that one of Ahab's hounds is Old Man Logan. Well, let's talk about this. Um, I'm having early Phoenix Resurrects lapsed flashbacks here because I love this. I really, really love this. I had a lot of fun with this one. And just like with uh, the early issues of Phoenix Resurrection, I can hardly wait to get to the next chapter. This was a really good time. Uh, Let's take a look at some of my main takeaways from the issue here. Uh, During the Amalgamated X-Men meeting, Iceman suggests that his younger self couldn't possibly be dead because he's still alive in the present. Here's where I'm a bit confused. Um, though that is probably has a lot to do with my X-reading for the second half of the 2010s being pretty spotty. I thought, and I could totally and 100% be wrong here, um, that it was revealed at some point in time that the time-displaced X-Men were from a non-616 Marvel Universe? Like, didn't they try to get sent back one time only to learn that they couldn't be sent back to a time that they didn't actually come from? Maybe I dreamt that. Uh, hopefully, by the time we get through this event miniseries, I'll have a better grasp on the particulars. Or, you know, any grasp at all. Because uh, if they are revealed as the 616 ones... Because last episode, we talked about those, um, the theories, right? What would happen if they went back with the knowledge? That was with the assumption that these weren't 616 characters. Like, my question was, what if they were? And if they are... I mean, the only way they can go back is with a mind wipe, right? Which I hope I didn't just spoil myself. uh, Because that's the only way I could see them going back back to the 616 would be with a mind wipe. And maybe that's why uh, Kid Cable is sawing off Angel's weird wings. I don't know. I don't know. We'll find out as we get there. Uh, Now, I really liked that the uh, teenage X-Men were acting like teenagers here. In the... In the timeless sort of way, like the stuck-between-childhood-and-adulthood sort of way, and not, certainly not the talking-like-they're-constantly-posting-on-Twitter sort of way. Now that, to me, was among the main failings of X-Men Blue. They turned the too-cute, snarky banter up to 11 in that book, which A. Sucked B. Didn't give me a team I wanted to root for And C. Sucked now, having Scott be perturbed that the X-Men are trying to babysit them made perfect sense. Uh, also, the fact that the X-Men are kind of usurping a fight which Scott felt was theirs, right? It was their fight, the original five's fight against Ahab. He was coming for them. And here we are with Kitty and, and the you know the main X-Men saying, no, nah, we got this one, you know? Got to remember, I mean, Scott, while young, has been a field leader for a, a while now. Now, having Kitty more or less, more or less bench them would certainly be seen as something of a slap in the face and while that wasn't that isn't the intention a teenager of any era could see it that way so i like the way this was portrayed i'm not so sure about scott recognizing kid cable right away that seems a little bit convenient i think i'd have preferred it had scott recognized that the kid was familiar and maybe had a suspicion but wasn't 100% sure who he was here Though, in fairness, we've only got three more issues to fill, so we got to keep this thing moving on. Uh, The Cliffhanger. Cliffhanger was something. i got to say, I mean, I know, I've read The Death of Wolverine. I've read the first, maybe, uh, boy, six months to a year's worth of Old Man Logan when he was in the 616 post-secret wars. I don't know where, I don't know where he went to. I don't know how we get rid of Old Man Logan, so... Is this extermination event his swan song as well? Are we getting rid of the original five, Old Man Cable and Old Man Logan here? And Bloodstorm, I guess? Um, Are we going to get the reveal that he's always been a hound of Ahab? Um, Or is this cliffhanger something that'll just resolve itself within the first couple of pages of the next chapter? I'm not sure, but I am very much looking forward to finding out. The art. Let's talk about the art here. It was pretty phenomenal, as should be expected from the talents involved. A really nice-looking book, which made this event feel even more important than it already is. Uh, Overall, maybe I'm being a little bit Pollyanna here, but I'm having a heck of a time with this so far. Um, Of course, I was also having a great time with Phoenix Resurrection until the final issue as well. Let's hope that this one doesn't go the way of talking to a bird. For an entire issue, a uh, really good stuff here. Uh, if you haven't checked this out yet, I definitely, definitely recommend you do. And that's about all I got to say about this issue. This might be the shortest episode yet, and it's for a book that I absolutely adored. Go figure. I guess I guess you get more time when you complain, right? When there's stuff to complain about, you can't shut me up. But I hope you're enjoying the coverage, and I hope you're enjoying the book if you are following along as well. Uh, if you are, please, please consider reaching out and let me know how you feel about this series. Uh, maybe give me some of your original five time-displaced X-Men memories. How, how did you how did you like it when they showed up? How did you like it when they wouldn't leave? <laughs> how did you like it when they finally did? Uh, please feel free to reach out. You can find me a few different places on the internet. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics. Or you can hit me up on the old-fashioned email at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com you can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisoninfinitearts.com where I'm just shy of a week away from uh, my 5 year anniversary there posting new comics related content every single day since January 31st 2016 long long time ago so yes earth.com. if you'd like to talk to us on facebook about x men about anything you want find us we're at 90s x men and you can listen to the entirety of the Chris and Reggie audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that'll do it. This is almost certainly the shortest episode of this program yet, unless there's an episode of Major X-Lapsed I'm forgetting about that might have gone a little shorter. That is a possibility. There was uh, not always a lot to talk about in that one, but uh, I'd like to thank you for sharing your time with me all the same. It really, really means a lot. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. This is Chris. Welcome to x Ex-Labstination, Episode 4, which uh, might just be the shortest episode I've ever, ever put out. Um, we're going to be talking about Extermination Number 3. This had a November 2018 cover date. Stories called Extermination, Part 3 of 5, written by Ed Brisson with art by Pepe Larraz. Colors, Mardi Grasia, Letters, VCs, Josephino. Edits, Robinson Shan, White, Sabalski, Cover price, $3.99 dollars 99 And this one went on sale September 26th, 2018. So let's start this one by taking a look at the uh, very fun cover it comes with here. It's a cover that, it's weird, it sort of both explains what happens in the issue, but it's kind of anachronistic in that um, all of our X-Force characters, because the picture is uh, Jean Grey, the young Jean Grey, hanging out with X-Force, which is kind of what we're going to be getting to in this issue, and it was hinted at in the last issue. But what we see here is young Gene surrounded by, like, a very different-looking X-Force team. Like, Shatterstar doesn't look anything like current-year Shatterstar. He looks like he's straight out of 1991. They actually, all of the uh, the X-Force characters look like they're straight out of 1991 here. We've got Cannonball and his old Togs, uh, Boom Boom with the, uh, the shorter hair, uh, Domino, and Warpath. And they're all straight out of X-Force number one from the looks of it here, but... Uh, That's not reflected on the inside, for better or for worse, I suppose But let's hop right in here And we open at, let me get a uh, running start here The Xavier Institute for Mutant Education and Outreach Which I hate every, I think I hate it a little bit more every time I say it Because it's such a long name Now we pick up pretty much right where we left off with issue two Where old man Logan has been houndified And he's currently got the young Hank McCoy in his sights from here, we get an immediate scene shift to C-Rebro, where young Scott Summers is holed up with the Red Team, much to his chagrin. You see, he'd much rather be with the rest of the time-displaced teammates, but, you know, he needs some protecting. That's kind of what, uh, that's the order that Kitty passed, and, uh, well, they're just gonna do what they gotta do. Next, we shift scenes again, and we're on board a jet with the old X-Force and young Jean Grey. Of course, toward the end of last issue, she said she wanted to hang out with them. And she admits that she invaded their minds To find out what they have in mind Which, as we've talked about before Was sort of Young Jean's M.O. She would uh, just go into people's brains Um, Now she knows that they're after Young Cable Because, well They'd really like to kill Young Cable We go back to Xavier's here And old man Logan is swiping And am I only now Realizing that he's got bone claws I I, I tell you I'm not always the most perceptive I, I don't know if he... Always just had bone claws, or if this was something that uh, that was new-ish. I don't know. Now, the elder beast gets involved, and he questions how Ahab could have possibly programmed Logan to be a hound with such quickness. Usually, the hound-making process is time-intensive, so, uh, you know, what gives? Was it my guess from last episode that old man Logan has always been a sleeper hound? No, no, no it's not that at all, actually. Now, Ahab explains that he was able to fast-track the programming with a little help from his little friends, Maxime and Manon. If you remember, the event miniseries began with their rescue. You see, Maxime does some emotional manipulation, and from there, Manon implants what Ahab refers to as a psychic bomb. Basically, years' worth of memories. So, years' worth of Hound programming, even, all in one go. Real Bobby swoops in, demanding to know what happened to his younger self. Stands to reason. And, uh, can we just parse that sentence for a second? I I gotta wonder how the uninitiated might receive such a statement. You know, real, old Bobby comes in, wanting to know what happened to his younger self. Eh. Anyway, Ahab swats him away. Beast then monkey flips old man Logan away. Then Storm pops in to tell real Hank to get young Hank the heck out of Dodge. Ahab laughs that there's nowhere to run You see, old man Logan isn't the only Insta-hound that he's created of late And so, with a snap of his fingers We shift scenes back over to Cerebro Or Cerebro The underwater place where the Red Team hangs out Where young Cyclops is suddenly attacked By Nightcrawler Now he gets grabbed and bamfed But to where? Well, we'll find out soon enough First we gotta shift scenes back to the X-Force jet where Young Jean Grey is attacked by Shatterstar. Back to see rebro Young Scott is dumped deep in the drink. Young G- Real Jean... Oh boy. Real Jean worries that the water pressure will kill him, down at the bottom of the ocean where they're at. Back to the jet, X-Force fights off Shatterstar. Young Jean attempts to reach into Gavrita Seven's mind, but cannot. Back to see rebro Young Scott is somehow rescued, and he's laid out on a bed. Back to the jet... Cannonball decides, F it, and he blasts Shatterstar out the side of the rig. Back to Xavier's. Ahab sends a few hounds after Young Beast. Suddenly, however, Young Cable shows up, and then body slides him and Young Beast out of there. At which time, Ahab and company decide, Nah, nothing left for us here, let's just leave. We shift over to Cable's safe house, where he's now got three of the time-displaced original five. Kid Cable hears some screaming in the next room And we see that it's the Mimic, Calvin Rankin Hooked up to a machine of sorts And he's not in a good way Cable asks the AI professor to KO the fella And so it does Now, if I were a betting man Which thankfully I'm not I'd guess that uh, the old Mimic is about to undergo a wingectomy Maybe to give young Warren his feathers back Before he goes back to where he came from Let's go back to X-Force. Young Jean and Domino talk about their plan, and yeah, it's to kill the kid who killed Cable, which is to say, kill kid Cable. Young Jean is a bit standoffish, but still on board with the mission. We shift scenes to the Pequod, which I suppose is Ahab's floating helicarrier type of thing. Hound Nightcrawler arrives and informs old Pegleg that he's like, uh, you know, 95% sure that young Scott is dead. Ah, it's not good enough for Ahab, and so he sets course for Cerebro to ensure that the deed is done. He also ponders where the other time-displaced teens might have gotten off to. Maxime and Manon inform him that there's another player in this game, Kid Cable. Now, they're not sure exactly what he's up to, but what they do know is that whatever it is he's up to, he's probably too late. And this takes us to the end. We're going to Cable's safe house again, where he finds himself attacked by Young-Gene and X-Force. And that is where we leave it. So, let's talk about this, I guess. Um, We are now just past the midway point of this event miniseries. And this was very much a, um, like a transitional issue, right? It got us from point A to point B. Um, thing of it is, there isn't a whole heck of a lot to say about it. Um... You've probably heard me mention the old uh, quandary of part four of six, right? Uh, the part four of a six-part story is always just like, why are we even bothering, right? It's just uh, either bits and pieces of recap. It's just it's connective tissue that you really start to see the seams of um, decompression in that sort of a situation here. This doesn't feel decompressed, but it does feel very much like a... Uh, you know, it's it's probably not fair for me to say Since I haven't read the second half of this But it feels like they just crammed a whole lot in here Just to get it out of the way we set, we set the stage in the first two issues And now it's just like, okay, we gotta get some stuff moving here So, bada bing, bada boom, we have all these scenes play out It's very cinematically done, very well done I enjoyed it But it's hard to, uh It's hard to really think about a whole lot to say about it Which isn't a failing of the book It's kind of a failing of my, uh my process, I suppose uh, More than anything uh, What can I say? Uh, I felt like this was very clever use of Maxime and Manon It makes sense why they showed up now I didn't know where they came from When I first saw them in the Dawn of X books I think we saw them in I think it was the uh, The first part of the New Mutants uh, farm story Was Might have been the first time we saw them There, though we might have seen them before that I don't know But I remember not knowing where they came from I did see them in Age of X-Men, but I didn't think that's where they originated. Now we know that they originated here, and now we know why they originated here. Because they have the ability to instantly houndify someone. So, a very creative use. And it makes me uh, question all the more, where in the hell does old man Logan go? I don't know what his end is. I thought maybe this was it, but it doesn't look like it is. Um, now, if this story's headed where I think it might be headed, this is very clever use of Calvin Rankin the Mimic as well. Um, over the years, young Warren, young Angel, got, like, those weird glowing wings, right? And to send him, if he is a 616 character, to send him back to the past with those wings would be... well, it would change a lot of things, right? So, we need to make him whole again, and, uh, what better way than with Calvin Rankin's wings, which... It's weird to think of that If this story is going the way I think it's headed Warren's going to get new old wings And be sent back in time And from that point on He'll be using the Mimic's wings That's... uh, It's not quite, you know, Hal Jordan With Malvolio's ring after Action Comics Weekly But it's still kind of weird It's still kind of weird X-Force, wanting revenge against Cable's killer Cable (laughs) It makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, it was fun hearing their uh, reminiscences. You know, uh, Boom Boom mentions that Cable and Domino—they, you know—they go way back, and they used to take baths together all the time. And that's actually a reference to something that we saw in very very early X Force. They bathed once, I believe. It was a—it uh, was back when Liefeld was still on the book. And like you would think, if you saw this page, you would think the bathtub was the size of. Like an infinity pool. Like, it was just a massive bathtub. With, like, Domino on one side and Cable on the other. It's like... Like those, uh... Like the scenes of, uh... Bruce Wayne having dinner, right? It's like a giant table with him on one end and his guest all the way, like... You'd have to, like, get the cans of soup with the string to talk to the person across the table. That's how far apart Cable and Domino would be in these damn... In this damn bath. But, uh... I thought it was funny that they, uh... That Boom Boom mentions it here, because... You know, it doesn't take much to conjure up that image because it's just so weird. And I'm guessing that, uh, that Brisson has very similar uh, memories of that scene that uh, many of us who were around at the time probably do. And just like, oh yeah, I remember that. It didn't happen often, but the time it did happen was pretty bizarre and memorable because it was just weird. So I like that a lot. But other than that, not a whole heck of a lot more to say. The art, of course, was fantastic. Um, this is still, you know, Pepe Larraz. is our, uh, our House of X team here, Pepe Larraz and Mardi Garcia. Really, really good stuff. Really pretty book. Makes the book feel like it's very, very important. And despite the fact that uh, maybe this was a little bit weaker than the first two issues, I still very much enjoyed it. And I'm still looking forward to uh, seeing how this all comes out the back end. So uh, that, my friends, is extermination number three, halfway through this event miniseries. Before I cut out of here, I do want to uh, say a few words here, because today, as this comes out, it's January 31st of 2021, which means five years ago today, I started Chris's on Infinite Earths.com and uh, have been putting out content there every single day ever since, so... Five solid years of comics discussion and podcasts and reviews and chatter and stupidity and nonsense. And uh, I would like to thank everyone for their support over these last five years. I really wish there was more I could do to celebrate and commemorate, but uh, as I've mentioned in several shows of late, I'm in the middle of a move, so time is not on my side (laughs) as far as... uh, Being able to set aside time to adequately celebrate something like five years of uh, solid blogging. Maybe I'll put up a few words on the site uh, if I can find the time, or even think about how I want to pursue it, you know? um, Chris's On Infinite Earth started as one thing, and now it's something very, very different. Uh, And a lot of that's out of necessity, and a lot of that was affected by uh, events of the past couple of years, so... I hope everyone is still enjoying what it is that I do. And uh, I would like to thank everyone for letting me be a part of this community for as long as I've uh, been trying to be a part of this community. So thank you all so much. And uh, if you'd like to check out some of the stuff at Chris's on Infinite Earths, you can do so at Chris's on Infinite com. It's a pretty easy place to find it. It might autofill for you. Probably not. Probably not. But... Uh, you can find a lot of stuff there. For the first uh, four years, it was all DC Comics reviews. Uh, I spent about, I think it was ten solid months talking about every single story in Action Comics Weekly, something that I called Action Comics Daily. So every day there was a new story from Action Comics Weekly, that, uh, the anthology series from 1988-1989. Uh, uh, I've gone through almost all of Vartox's appearances, the Bronze Age Superman frenemy. And I hate the fact that I just said that word. That's all up there. We called that Vartox Week, and it took about a month. So, there's that. Uh, also did all the bonus books and uh, and preview inserts from DC Comics throughout uh, the early 80s and into the uh, late 80s with the uh, post-crisis versions of those. Those are all up there on the site. A lot of stuff there. A lot of stuff there. I think it's something like two million words about comic books are up there right now, so... If you have a free uh, afternoon or two, Chris is on com is waiting for you. Now, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so very, very easily. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or shoot me an email over at weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. Again, Chris is on There's also xlapsed chris is on There's also moratory.chris is on There's also cosmic treadmill.chrisoninfinitearth.com. A lot of subdomains for a lot of the different projects that we work on over there. Uh, if you'd like to talk with us about X-Men stuff, our little group is 90s X-Men on Facebook. There's also a Chris is on Infinite Earths group on Facebook if anybody's interested in that. And, of course, the entire audio archives are available at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that'll do it for this installment of X-Labs the Nation. I'd like to thank you all so, so much for deciding to share your time with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 5 of X-Lapse The Nation, where we're going to take a look at the penultimate chapter of this event miniseries, but it is not the penultimate episode of this program. We're going to be uh, taking a look at some uh, epilogue pieces once uh, the miniseries is out of the way. And uh, and on the subject of epilogues, uh, we might just have to break open a past Sunday special series And Phoenix Resurrects lapsed Because, uh well you see There is an epilogue to that There's a, a bridging chapter to that Between the miniseries and X-Men Red It's in the X-Men Red Annual Which I really didn't want to cover Because I thought it was awful But maybe we'll do that Maybe we'll do that Let me know what you think If, uh, if I should uh, venture into uh Someone throwing a hot dog at Nightcrawler uh, a, a hot dog that tastes like mustard and bigotry uh, maybe not, maybe not. Anyway, let's get into the issue we're going to discuss today. This is Extermination Number 4, Had a December 2018 cover date. The story's called Extermination, Part 4, 5. Written by Ed Brisson with layouts by Pepe Larez. Pencils by Ario An- Anandito. Uh, inks, Dexter Vines. Colors, Eric Archinaga, Letters, VCs, Joe Sabino. Edits, Shan White. Cebulski, cover price $3.99. And this one went on sale... On Halloween of 2018 Now let's start with the cover Because it is a pretty great cover here Um, This is an homage to X-Men number 137 From September 1980 This is the, I mean, you know it if you see it It's the Phoenix Must Die cover You got Scott and Gene And like they're holding fast here They're under fire And uh, it says Phoenix Must Die This one Says summers must die, and it features Jean in her familiar spot But Cyclops ain't there, instead it's Kid Cable Now they do attempt to make the trade dress look retro as well But, I mean they do, it works But it's a bit anachronistic to the cover that they're homaging here Um, If you're familiar with Marvel Comics in the 80s You might remember, like, the big, like, empty M shape that they'd use, where, like, they'd stick the issue number into one leg of the M, and the price would be in there, and then, you know, they'd stick the comics code stamp. That's where that would go, but that was more like a mid-'80s thing than an early-'80s thing, and this is homaging a 1980 issue. Still, though, it makes for a very, very striking cover, and I really do like it. I like it a lot. Um, I thought this was a variant. Because, you know, that's kind of what they do with variants. They do the homages and stuff, but this looks to be the actual, you know, the prime cover for uh, Extermination Number 4, and I really, really like it. Now, we open the book, right? And here's something we don't usually talk about, but we will today. It's uh, the advertisement on the inside front cover. And I never really talk about the ads in this show, but this one's for the launch of that weekly Disassembled Era Uncanny X-Men volume, which... I still kind of have trouble reconciling a timeline for, right? I don't know where everything fell into place, what books were going, what books stopped, when books stopped, because it looks like red went a little longer than blue and gold, and I don't know when black happened, (laughs) and uh, then there was that other X-Force volume that comes out of this, and it's really, really hard for me to just reconcile this timeline, which is so weird, considering that it... uh, you know, to be completely honest, I I wasn't away that long. I was gone for around two years, and boy, what a two years it was! Um, now, if nothing else, doing these Sunday specials is making me get a better feel for the order in which these stories occurred here. Uh, I would have never known where uh, you know Phoenix Resurrection happened and when <laughs> where this went in. So, uh, doing this is actually kind of helpful. Now, I do remember being momentarily excited for the launch of this Disassembled Era, simply for the fact that we'd be out of the color era, and we'd actually have a volume of Uncanny back on the shelves, because it never really feels right when we don't have one. Even now, as I record this, we're in the Dawn of X, you know, X of Swords era, and we don't have an Uncanny X-Men. You know, X-Men Volume 5 did launch with the legacy numbering that continued from Uncanny X-Men, but... We don't know if that's legit, we don't know if that was a mistake, we don't know if that's something that'll ever be referenced again Because uh, we're dealing with a lot of legacy books here I mean, every book we've got on the list here is a legacy book It's a book that has prior volumes, and we're not using legacy numbering in the X-Men books right now So, it's, yeah, kind of weird, who knows, <laughs> who knows But uh, I did pre- pre-order pre the first issue Of uh, Uncanny, I believe it was Uncanny Volume 5 Um, Before, I I didn't even read the solicit Because I I don't read the solicits You know, I try not to spoil myself on anything that's yet to come But this meant that I didn't realize that this was a weekly series And I didn't realize that it was being written by committee And I didn't realize that uh, a lot of the issues were going to be a little bit higher in price So by the time I got the thing I knew all that, and I was beyond disinterested, so I kind of just set it aside. I flipped through it, didn't care for it enough to actually head out to a comic store and buy the issues that I forgot to pre-order. So, it's that. I have since gone and filled in the entire run, but that's just something that I do because I am an idiot. Alrighty, how about we get into the story now? Let's do this here. We open at the Pequod, which is Ahab's, you know, helicarrier dealing. Now, Ahab, he's flanked by his hounds, Nightcrawler and Old Man Logan, as well as Maxime and Manon. They're uh, being directed to see Rebro so they can ensure that young Scott Summers is, in fact, dead. Last issue, uh, Nightcrawler was there, and he bamfed him out into, you know, the deepest parts of the ocean. Gene and company somehow got him out of there, and for all we know, or for all Ahab knows, he's dead or alive, and he'd like to confirm it. Now, the Navigator informs our baddie that they're right above the place. You know, Cerebro. And uh, Ahab commands that they submerge. I feel like uh, this isn't a responsible use of panels here. We're, we're just spending a lot of time on, like, uh, a thing going underwater. I don't know. We shift scenes from here to the Xavier Institute for Mutant Education and Outreach, where Cannonball arrives on the scene carrying a KO'd Shatterstar. He reconnoiters with the X-Men, and they share the stories of everything that had gone down last issue. Iceman comments that Old Man Logan and Rachel left with Ahab, so I guess I missed that last part. I didn't even notice Rachel. Um, Well, Iceman's got no reason to lie to us, so we'll take his word for it. Katie decides that, hey, guess what? They're going after Ahab, which, I mean, no duh. I'm surprised she didn't send them like in eight different directions to find something before they get to Ahab, but uh, hey, time is of the essence here. We've only got one issue left. Scene shift to Cable safe house. Like we left off last issue, X-Force, they are there. And it's like a scene out of the A-Team here, just tons of bullets flying, but nobody getting hit. Jean decides, finally, to step in and freezes everybody in place. Now she wants some answers before there are any any casualties. And so she asks Kid Cable what he's going on about here. He assures her that his only goal here is to save everybody. When asked why he killed Old Man Cable, well, the kid corrects Gene, claiming that he simply retired Old Man Cable because he'd grown too soft. And he accepts that one day the same thing will happen to him. He reiterates that his elder self was supposed to be keeping the timeline in order, which, uh, hmm, I mean, Cable kind of jumped in and out of time all the time. Uh, he was kind of an anomaly in and of himself. Uh, let's just leave that one alone because uh, I figure we could probably be here all day poking holes in that one. Kid Cable informs Gene that Ahab is only here to ensure that one of the time displaced original five dies because that would fundamentally change everything that comes after. You know, if they don't go back as a unit, well, the future will change, which, you know, totally stands to reason. And it's also a. Uh, I guess it's clarification or confirmation that the time-displaced Original Five are from the 616, then? Okay. Um, hmm. Now, this kind of begs the question here. Uh, why wasn't present-day Hank McCoy or, hell, any of the other X-Men worried about the kids dying and changing the timeline to this point? I mean, you'd figure they'd be treating the kids like Fabergé eggs or something, right? Priority friggin' one should have been sending them home and not sending them on missions where they could die. Which is what we've gotten for you know, six or seven years at this point. Now Gene still needs a bit of convincing. And so Kid Cable removes his telepathy blocker and lets her read his mind. And so she does. And it's basically an affirmation as to everything he's said. If Ahab is to succeed, everything would change. So Jean comes around to Kid Cable's point of view. Boom Boom, however, still ain't buying it. After all, look what Kid Cable did to Angel. He mutilated the poor boy, ripped his wings off. But yeah, uh, there was a, you know, a bit of a method to this madness here. Um, just like we guessed last episode, Warren can't be sent back to the past with cosmic fire wings, and so Kid Cable had to set him up with some Rankin-Brand feather wings. Young Hank wakes up. I, I think it's Young Hank. Uh, he seems kind of skinny, but... It's either young Han- it's skinny Hank or a young Bobby with miscolored hair. Whoever it is, he wants to help Cable. Scene shift. To Cerebro. The Pequod arrives and Ahab releases the hounds. And yeah, Rachel is there. I have no idea how I missed her the first time. Kid Cyclops, or as the cover states, Summers must die. And so we fight. Hound Nightcrawler bamfs into the room where young Scott is recovering from his near-drowning last issue. But before he can do anything, he's shot in the chest by a trank dart, courtesy of Kid Cable, X-Force, and the rest of the Time Displaced Original Five. Cyclops gets himself caught up a bit on everything that's gone on, but still decides that he's going to take the fight to Ahab anyway, due to what he had done to Bloodstorm. Remember, Ahab was responsible for Bloodstorm's death back in, episode, in issue one. And so, Cyclops charges at Ahab at which time Ahab rears back with his spear, and we conclude our penultimate chapter with Cyclops being impaled on said spear, which is kind of like stuck like a dart in a wall right now. So we see this only from behind, like Cyclops' legs are dangling. Uh, So we really don't know the extent of his injuries. It is quite bloody, however. And that is where we leave it. Next episode, we will wrap up the event miniseries and uh, hopefully send some kids back to the past. So let's talk about this issue here Um, Pretty good uh, penultimate chapter, right? I mean, a lot of our questions are answered here A lot of my questions are answered uh, As in, kind of getting a feel for exactly where these kids come from Because uh, I feel like when uh, Mr. Bendis decided he was done with the X-Men He decided that he didn't give a rat's ass what happened to the X-Men after he left he kind of made a mess of things and just dropping dropping ideas on his editors and dropping ideas in this shared corner of the Marvel universe and then just being like see you later guys I, I think there's a Defenders Netflix show so I got to go write Defenders now. It felt like he uh, really didn't stick the land he didn't stick any of the landings for his X-Men run which is unfortunate because I think I mentioned this during the first episode of X-Labs Nation when all new x-men started i i quite enjoyed it for the first bit you know i thought bendis had a pretty good uh, pretty good ear for for the dialogue there uh, for the characters there i thought it was a pretty decent job he did especially with the you know we went into that with a lot of doubt <laughs> you know it was one of those stories where it's just like yeah that's not going to work you know as soon as we heard about it i remember the X contingent on the uh, on the internet were just like, no, <laughs> that's not gonna work. And it's kind of like uh, when Dan Slott was like, "Hey, uh, Doctor Octopus is gonna be Spider-Man," and we were all like, "No, no." And then we read it and was like, "Wow, this is fantastic." So we started all new X Men. It's like, okay, this might work. I-, I don't think it was nearly as fantastic as Superior Spider-Man, but it was like, okay, this could work. I think we got something here. But then they change these characters to the point where it's like Well, you can't send them back You really can't send them back if, Unless they're not from our timeline Which is kind of the feeling we got Toward the end of the uh, Was it Dennis Hopeless? I think it was Dennis Hopeless Who did the uh, second volume of All New X-Men Where the X-Men, the original five Were sent back to where they came from And saw that they were already there so we all assumed that oh okay well these are from a different dimension and then all new went away was replaced with blue and then we get here. So I, I think that uh, you know many many landings were uh, insufficiently stuck. Uh, so it's nice to actually get a little bit of clarification here. As you guys know, I haven't read any of the X Men Blue books uh, outside the first uh, the first arc there. So I don't know if they've been hinting that they are from the six one six. During that, I don't know if it's something that we're supposed to know. I really don't know. I don't know if Cable Kid Cable is coming back to get to verify this for all of us. For, for all I know, that's this is news to everybody as this issue is coming out. But I'm happy to finally have a better idea that uh, these kids are from the six one six. He's uh, Cable's making sure that they are kind of the same as they were when they were to- when they were plucked out, and I gotta assume that this will wrap up with uh, something of a mind wipe, right? Because, like we've been talking about for this entire series to this point, with our little what-if game, you know, like what if they still had this knowledge and they went back in time and they were from our, uh, you know, mainstream Marvel universe, what would change? i, I got to figure that there will be some some form of mind wipe to uh, wrap up this miniseries. So. We'll worry about that next time, though. Uh, Something that I'm interested in in seeing if there's any sort of, uh... Any sort of follow-up on is... Like, are people going to take Beast to task for bringing them to the present in the first place? Since, I mean, Cable, the way Cable puts it here, if any of them were to die, everything would change. So, instead of having to just protect, like, a single person, you're you're protecting a, a small team of children. And, uh... It seems like Beast really didn't think that through. I guess the entire point was to change the present anyway, right? By having Scott see what he would turn into. Still, though, I mean, these kids should have been, like, wrapped in bubble wrap and, like, kept in a room somewhere until they figured out how to get them back. If, If that whole butterfly effect, if one of them passes, it's just... Everything changes, so it's... I hope that there's some follow-up there. I'm not counting on there being any follow-up, but I hope there is. I hope uh, Beast is called, uh, taken a task for his, uh, irresponsible use of the time stream here. Now, more of, uh, what Kid Cable said here. Um, he mentions that his older self was, like, some sort of a guardian of the time stream. Uh, I'm not buying it. I'm really not buying that, because... Like, his whole gimmick early on was that he was sent back to the present from the future to stop this apocalyptic future, right? I mean, I understand it, but let's not paint him as a, a guardian of the time stream here. Um, Kid Cable points out that, like, the young X-Men with, like, the one thing that the old man Cable let slide. And it's like, well, his entire existence has been letting things slide because he's changing the present To change the future, so I don't think we're that hard and fast with these rules here But I suppose we need some sort of a Justification for Removing Old Man Cable So I guess it's as good as any, I guess? I don't know. Now, despite any of my quibbles here, I still very much enjoyed this, and I'm very much still engaged and really looking forward to seeing how this wraps up next week. So I'd still definitely recommend checking this uh, miniseries out if you're interested in seeing how... Well, I I don't even know if the original five go back at the end of the next issue. I'm assuming they do. I'm assuming they do. I don't know when Blue ended. I don't know when this ended, so... We'll see. We'll see when we get there. But uh, I would still definitely recommend checking this one out. Um, probably worth noting that uh, Pepe Larraz only did layouts for this issue, and it kind of shows. Uh, there are some pages that really, really look sharp, and then there are others that are a little bit looser than what we're accustomed to from uh, from Pepe Larraz here. Nothing against uh, the penciler, or the inker in this case, but... Uh, it was definitely a little different from what we're used to, but not bad by any stretch of the imagination. But I think that's all I've got to say about this penultimate issue of uh, Extermination. And I would still love to hear your thoughts on this series and on the kids, on the original five. Whatever the case, uh, please consider reaching out to me. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics or send me an email to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at com. You can join our little Facebook group, 90s X-Men on Facebook. And you can listen to a whole bunch of comic podcast stuff at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. I think that will do it for this week. I want to thank you all so, so much for choosing to spend a little bit of time with me on this fine day. It really, really means a lot. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you all again real soon. See ya. Hmm. Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 6 of x Labs Nation, where uh, today we're going to be wrapping up the Extermination mini-series. Uh, it's not the last episode of the program, it's just the last chapter of this story. So let's get right on into it. This is Extermination number 5. It had a February 2019 cover date. Story story's called Extermination Part 5 of 5, written by Ed Brisson with art by Pepe Larraz. Colors, Mardi Grasso. Letters, VCs, Josephino. Edits, Shan, White, Cebulski. Cover price, $5. This one went on sale December 19th of 2018. Now, we pick up right where we left off, where it looks as though Cyclops was just run through by Ahab, thus changing everything about the present and future of the X-Men. Now, Ahab celebrates his victory by inviting his hounds to feed Cable leans into Cyclops and tells him that he did good. Huh? Well, ready for the switcheroo? Turns out this wasn't Cyclops at all. This was just our old friend Calvin Rankin, the Mimic. See, Cyclops is off to the side somewhere covering his face because, you know, Rankin took his visor. Cable tries to convince Scott, the real one, to come back to the past with him. But our Slim ain't about to leave the X-Men in the lurch no matter what the potential cost. He charges toward Ahab, which, you know, worked really well for his stand-in just a few pages ago. Kid Cable shouts to adult Gene to keep trying to get into the Hound's minds, as uh, this will be the key to ending the battle. Gene's having a real hard time of it, though. Now, just as Cable says this, Maxime and Manon begin houndifying several more of our X-Men, starting with Boom Boom and Warpath. Then the cavalry finally arrives, straight out of the Xavier Institute for Gifted Higher Learning, Youngsters Education, Mutant Enlightenment, Basket Weaving, and Flower Arranging. It's Kitty, Rockslide, Armor, Glob Herman, Cannonball, and Adult Iceman and Adult Angel. Now Jean warns them to stay far away from the twins, to which Kitty focuses her forces on Ahab himself. Then we get a double page spread of X Men on Hound Violence and. Oh boy, it looks really, really good. Uh, we've got X man versus X Men. Some nameless hounds are in there. It's just a, it's just a spectacular visual here. We got Old Man Logan taking on X23. Uh, we got Armor in a giant, you know, bubble armor suit fighting a houndified Nezno. It's great. It really looks awesome. The colors pop. It is, it's beautiful. Then. Storm, who's been fighting with Ahab for a little while now Gets houndified and just goes nuts with the lightning And in another awesome visual The giant armor topples over onto the X-Men Who are just barely saved by the genes erecting a TK barrier bubble And I mean, words really can't do this art justice It's, it's awesome stuff, it feels epic Like you can almost hear it It's really, really spectacular Now inside the bubble... Kid Cable attempts to reason with young Scott and Jean, telling them how important it is for them to, you know, bug out. In a fun bit, Cyclops actually refers to his time-traveling son as Kid Cable, which little Nate does not appreciate. Which kind of reminds me of uh, Connell during uh, Reign of the Supermen not wanting to be called Superboy. It's It's pretty cute. Now Scott comes around and realizes that everything Cable is saying makes sense, because, you know, it does. Now, young Gene calls out to the rest of the Time Displaced Original Five to let them know that it's time to go home. Now, we get to see young Bobby's reaction, and it's pretty heartbreaking, considering the metamorphosis he'd undergone since arriving in the present. You see, he doesn't want to go back to live the lie. He's finally... he's finally comfortable in his own skin here. He's comfortable with who he is. Adult Iceman's nearby, and he assures him that everything will be okay. And even thanks his younger self for helping him to sort out who he really is Back with Cyclops, he tells Cable that this agreement to go back in time comes with strings You see, before they go, they gotta help take care of this hound problem Cable doesn't really have much of a choice, and so we'll sort this out too Now the Angels, they have a brief chat, it's probably worth mentioning Which is so surface level, it almost makes me wonder if they'd ever met In the six years worth of comics that they've both been in the same time frame here, you know It's very, very surface level Then, old man Logan pounces on Cable Who blasts him away with his Liefeldian Mark 69 boomstick Then, it's not a body slide, but it's a time slide by six Ahab is ticked off that uh, the original five and Kid Cable got away And he vows to follow them through the time stream To finish his endeavored task Now, Kid Cable and the Original Five, which is a horrible name for a band, they arrive in front of the Xavier Academy of Good Guy Things and Correspondence Courses for those of the Mutant Persuasion, but they're definitely not back in the past. Rather, they're in the future. They're smack dab between the present and that future that Kid Cable saw when he started this adventure. Now, the Original Five aren't quite sure what to make of it, But Cable insists that uh, there's a method to this madness, and he's got a plan. Just then, Ahab and his Ark arrive. Cable hurries young Jean into the school so she can chat up Maxime and Manon. You see, this is in the future, but it's before Ahab had been able to corrupt them. And so, Jean heads inside and has a sit-down with the kids, and they tell her all about their powers. Back outside, Cable and the X-Fellas, which is another awful name for a band, attack. They don't attack Ahab directly, they attack Ahab's Ark. Now this means that their peg-legged pursuer is now stuck. Gene rejoins the boys, and Cable timeslides them by five. The kid then charges at Ahab, grabs him some, and time-slides by two back to the present. Once there, Cable blasts the ever-loving bejesus out of Ahab, but... The present refuses to change You know, the Hounds are still doing their thing The X-Men are confused Because the original five, they're gone What's going on here? Well, Cable, he insists that everything is going according to plan here. He says the original five just need to close the time loop And then everything will work itself out And so, we hop back to the past And the original five are finally back home they head into the school, and they take their places right where they were during all-new X-Men number 1, January 2013 cover date. Gene does the thing, wipes their minds. Now, this closes the time loop and also fixes the present. Now, you see, the gimmick here is that the adult Original Five get all the memories of their formerly time-displaced counterparts. And so adult Jean now knows how to defeat Maxime and Manon, since young Jean had that chat with them in the future. Makes sense? Sort of? I mean, it's comics. It it, it makes sense in in the context. Now, everything's good. The dust is settling. The X-Men are licking their wounds, and as they do so, Ahab blinks out with Houndified Rachel. Now, she's the only Houndified X-Men not to return to normal following the loop closure, and, uh... Not really sure where that's headed, I'm I'm guessing we might find out. Kid Cable vows to find Ahab, and after a touching scene with his mom, who he refers to as Red, from those, you know, post-wedding miniseries in the 90s, he blinks away. We jump to several days later where there's a funeral being held with three caskets. I'm guessing those caskets are for cable, the adult version, Bloodstorm and Mimic. Then we follow the remaining original four X-Men to a malt shop where they can reflect a bit and share a toast in honor of their dead friend Scott. That takes us to our epilogue, and we're at Cable's safe house. He's reporting in that everything has gone back to normal and the potential crisis was averted. He heads over to the fridge to grab a beer, but doesn't drink it himself. Instead, he hands it over to the person that he's reporting to, and in our... Final page of this event miniseries It's Cyclops The adult version of Cyclops Kid Cable says to Dad That it's time for him to finally resurface And that's where we leave it That's the end of the miniseries But next episode We're going to be taking a look at X-Men The Exterminated The one-shot epilogue to this miniseries And uh, after that We'll be taking a look at another issue To uh, shed a little bit more light On how and why Cyclops came back. At least I hope so. I haven't read it yet, but I'm, I'm guessing that's probably what's coming. But let's talk about what we got here. I'm gonna start with our overall, okay? Because uh, we we just did five issues of Extermination plus the countdown, those those, those massive five pages. And I got to say, I enjoyed this all the way through. Um, it's worth saying that it ended pretty much how I expected it to. But, I mean, to be fair, it's really the only way it could have ended without messing everything up. I mean, earlier on in this series, we talked about the theories, right? We talked about the what-ifs. And that was when I wasn't sure that this original five, the time-displaced original five, were actually from the 616. Looks like they were. I didn't know that because the last I heard, they were not. <laughs> but, I mean, it's comics. Things change. So... I was doing this brainstorming, like, wow, if they do go back with all these memories, what's going to happen? And then it pretty much all falls into place that there's no way they can do this without wiping some minds. And it's exactly what they did. I do appreciate that the memories remain with the Elder Original Five. uh, And so it's not like the last six years that we were stuck with the time-displaced kids were swept under the rug here. All that stuff still matters. All that stuff still happened. I like it. I'm a fan of lore, I'm a fan of even inconvenient lore Which maybe some of this was, maybe it's a little confusing Maybe it's a little too much But it's here, and it all counts, and I love it Uh, Now let's look at the time travel aspects of this issue Which were a bit convenient, yeah But at least they were, relatively speaking, straightforward Because comics and time travel... That can get wonky I mean, we did Major X not too long ago on this show And, uh, that was weird (laughs) I mean, that was just all over the place Here, everything just sort of, it fits It wasn't too much, it wasn't overdone And everything served a purpose And everything was reflected in each time that we were, that we visited, right? Now, the big problem we had here was that Maxime and Manning Were houndifying the good guys at a rapid clip and so, in order to fix this, we had to fix that. And we did. Uh, but are we to assume that the Maxime and and that are going to remain with the X-Men are time-displaced? Like, we got to figure, we, we went about 10 years into the, into the future, I think, because I think in our countdown issues, we found out that the end was in 20 years, right? Because uh, the young X-Men, the time-displaced X-Men, were all grown-ups. So that was like 20 years into the future. When we went to the Xavier School with Cable in the original five just now, in the future, I think that was right between now and the, the, the end, right? So it's about ten years. So we gotta assume that these kids were plucked from about ten years or so in the future, unless I'm misunderstanding this whole bit, which is certainly a possibility. But if that is the case, because this was a time before they were corrupted by Ahab, so... Any time during that second decade, they were corrupted by Ahab. So this has got to be in the future, right? So if that is the case, that they are time displaced, uh, would Kid Cable be cool with them staying put in the present? I mean, his whole gimmick right now is that he's uh, like a sort of keeper and protector of the time stream, which is why he killed his elder self, right? He killed him for being soft and being lax in his duties. It was... He, he retired him, right? That was the that was the euphemistic way of saying it. I, I don't know if he's going to have a problem with these kids being here. I don't know if he's going to even care that the kids are here. Because, you know, sometimes stories are convenient. <laughs> sometimes story beats are convenient. But maybe we still got more to learn about the creepy twins here. Because I got to figure, in the present, they're probably not born yet. You know? Since they were young in the future, they're probably not born yet, so maybe they will be born? And maybe that'll be a story that uh, Ed Brisson's going to tell somewhere down the line? Maybe it's a story he's already told and I missed it. We'll find out. We'll find out. Let's work through some of the story beats of the issue here. Let's start with our fake-out, with our uh, cliffhanger resolve here. Did Mimic know that he was going to die when he swiped Scott's visor? Like was that the plan all along? Because I mean, he died, and Cable's like, "Hey, you did good." Was he just going to give Ahab his college best and hope to survive? I- I'm, I'd like to think so, but it seemed like he more or less jumped directly into Ahab's spear. <laughs> you know, so who knows? Who knows? Um, whatever the case, it was a de- it was a decent fake out. Um, a really creative use of the mimic in more ways than one throughout this mini series here. I love that they used his, uh, his wings to, uh, to fix the problem that we had with young Warren With those hellfire wings or the cosmic fire wings Whatever the hell they were I'm happy they were able to find a, an organic way To fix that, to right that weird wrong um, I, And also here, using him as Cyclops uh, I, I don't know that it would be... I mean, Cal Rankin's a grown-up Where Cyclops is a gawky, skinny teenager. So I. So you know the art. I mean, art is subjective, of course. But uh, you'd think that people would be like, "Hey, that's a grown man, not not you know teenage Cyclops." I don't know. (laughs) We'll let it go because uh, because it was like it was a gotcha for us, and it worked in that regard here. Not so much a gotcha for the characters in the book Who probably should have known better It's like, hey, that looks like a full-grown man But, uh, we'll allow it We'll allow it um, I'm not sure what Cal Rankin's status is right now From what I remember growing up He was always in that rarefied Air of, like, Deadpool and the Juggernaut Where a lot of folks And even some writers would say he's a mutant But, like The trading cards and San Lee would say they were not That he was not a mutant <laughs> I don't know for all I know, he's been retconned into actually being a mutant And is currently living on Krakoa As a matter of fact If I were a betting man, I'd bet that he is on Krakoa right now What are you going to do? Uh, the Return to the Past The Return to the Past uh, Very well done I only have one complaint And it has nothing to do with the book It's just that All my comics are packed, and so I don't have easy access to my copy of all-new X-Men number one. (laughs) Because I want to see if this jives. I wanted to see how close the scene was to it. Uh, If I were a betting man again, I'd guess that it jives pretty well here. Uh, If you remember, this was the event miniseries where we were told that our back issues mattered. So I have very little doubt that they did their best to sync everything up. I, I, I have a lot of reason to believe that they... This seemed like it was done with a lot of love and care. So I'm gonna guess that I'm gonna guess that it syncs up really, really well. Uh the original force, uh sharing a toast to Scott. Um I liked that scene a lot. Uh there was something about it I didn't like, but we'll get to it. But the scene itself, it uh it was a it was a very sad scene, you know, because and it's weird to say because I mean it's some it's hard to convey you know it's like it's hard to see the missing piece of a puzzle and it's hard to convey that in comics where so much so many things like life and death in comics don't really matter right here though we have these four friends they've been friends forever they're they're family and and you can tell that there's one empty chair there even even if they didn't say a word there, you we have this history of these characters and the way that uh, Pepe Larez has them sitting, it is kind of uncomfortable. It is kind of—I mean, it's phenomenally done, but you can you can feel a little bit of tension and unease and sadness in this scene. And you actually feel like Scott's missing. And I mean, that sounds silly because he he's certainly missing. It just the scene itself just didn't feel right without him. Scott belonged here. We know it. The creators know it, and the characters knew it as well I liked that a lot What I didn't care so much for was uh, Beast Beast basically goes, oopsie Mayhaps I shouldn't screw with the time stream anymore Like, that's his whole penance uh, I would have liked maybe a little bit more uh, self-flagellation than that <laughs> But uh, I guess beggars can't be choosers, right? I, I would have liked him to be like, wow, I was such an idiot Wow, I was so dumb, but it's just like Oops. Hey at least it all worked out in the end. Uh, now speaking of Scott, I love the cliffhanger. I absolutely popped for it. I was not expecting it. I did not see it coming. Um, and I loved it. I- I've been wondering for a long while how and when Cyclops came back. Um, when I left he was I left right after Secret was, so I knew he was dead. Then I found out that he was dead of the Terrigan Mists or whatever the hell, the stupid inhumans crap. And I never knew how he came back. All I knew was that in X Men Volume 5, Number 1, the first Dawn of X issue, Cyclops is back. That's all I knew. So I've been wondering how he got to, when and how he came back. And I'm glad to finally be seeing it here. And then in a couple of weeks, like I said, we're going to be taking a look at an issue that I believe explains it all. So, next week we're going to be doing X Men The Exterminated. Then, the week after that, we're going to be taking a look at Uncanny X Men Annual Number One. And I should probably clarify because it's like the fifth or sixth Uncanny X Men Annual Number One. Um, it's the one from probably 2019. Uh, Ed Brisson wrote it. So, I'm looking forward to it. I'm hoping that this is a continuation of his vision for, uh, for the character and for this story. So, really looking forward to that. I've mentioned it a few times during this discussion here, but the art here was spectacular. The art is amazing here. What could have just been simple fight scenes looked uh, amazing. Uh, They were just epic, and like I said, it felt like you could hear them. (laughs) They were just that well done and fleshed out, and they were bright, and they popped uh, the entire art team here hats off to them just a wonderful wonderful job here and this was a uh, this was an oversized issue too and and you can there was no slack here it was just really really strong wonderful wonderful stuff so yeah so I'm coming away from this mini series event with uh positive thoughts here all positive thoughts really really enjoyed my time with it i if you have not read this uh This miniseries, I I highly recommend it I'm guessing it's probably on Marvel Unlimited by now And uh, I know there's a trade collection too Because I bought it and never read it (laughs) So it does exist But uh, loved it Thought this was really, really well done Answered so many of my questions Maybe that's why Maybe I should throw in a disclaimer here That this miniseries just answered so many of my questions That I had since coming back into the X-Men fandom That maybe... Maybe it it maybe I'm reacting to it with a bit more excitement than someone else might so if you were reading you know the blue, the gold, the red, the black, and then you went into this I don't know if you would have received it the same way I did, but if you are or were ex lapsed like me, I think there's a lot here there's a lot of meat on the bone here a lot of a lot of questions get answered and a lot of uh, A lot of things get folded up neatly and put in an envelope and just put away for a bit. So, really like the way they did this. Everything, to me, made sense. And, uh, and it was gorgeous to look at. I mean, what more can you ask for? Uh, so, I think that's all I've got to say about this issue. Just, uh... High recommendation. Really, really enjoyed it. Uh, Love to hear your thoughts on the entire event here. Uh, The original five, did they overstay their welcome? Did they go back too soon? What do you think about Calvin Rankin? (laughs) Is he a human, a mutant, a mutate? What in the hell is he? Or was he? Or is he now? I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can find me a few different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrissoninfiniteearth.com, and you can join us on Facebook. Our little group is called 90s X-Men, 90s X-Men, no hyphen. And you can also hear all sorts of noise over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that's where we'll put a pin in it for today. I'd like to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time with me and including me in your day-to-day. Until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. What's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 7 of x Labs: the Nation. Uh, this is actually the penultimate episode of x Labs: the Nation. We're through with the Extermination miniseries, and we're just doing a little bit of a cleanup right now. We got an epilogue today, which, uh, well, it's not the most exciting thing in the world. It's not going to really set anybody uh, anybody's toes on fire, but uh, we'll get there. We'll get there. In fact, this is an X-Men story so vital and important that, uh, believe it or not, it got a Fantastic Four Villains variant cover. Can we stop with this crap, please? Can we? Do we need... Does anyone out there need the Fantastic Four Villains variant for the Cable eulogy issue? I mean, come on. Could you imagine, like, a funeral for a friend? You know, Superman died. I mean, Superman and Cable are two different characters, of course, but... Can you imagine if they did like a, here's a Challenges of the Unknown variant for uh, the first issue where, where Superman's dead. It's like, come on, dude, we, we got to stop with this crap. This is just stupid. All right, with that out of the way, <laughs> let's get to our uh, wildly, um, well, let's just get to the story here. This is X-Men, The Exterminated number 1, had a February 2019 cover date. We've got two stories here, and we're going to handle them. One at a time. The first one is a Hope Summers and Jean Gray story, written by Zach Thompson and Lonnie Nadler, with art by Neil Edwards, colors J. David Ramos, letters V. C. Josebino, edits Danny Kazem, Darren Chan, Jordan D. White, and C. B. Sobalski. Cover price four dollars ninety nine cents, so a five dollar book. This one went on sale December 5th of 2018, so uh, if you're paying very close attention to release dates here, you'll know that this came out a few weeks before Extermination No. 5. So uh, the epilogue came before the final issue here. Um, Not that it really... Well, you know what? I take that back. It actually does sort of kind of spoil something here. Uh, Like I mentioned, this is the Cable uh, eulogy issue. So uh, it kind of does spoil that Cable stays dead, uh, you know, after the events of extermination. So he does not come back in the final issue. Um, He is replaced by the younger version. So I guess, I guess technically that would be a spoiler here. Um, So let's get into this here. This is the Hope and Gene story here, and we open with Hope Summers leading a team of young X-Men through a battle against Apocalypse. Her team includes Anol, Nature Girl, Glob Herman, Armor, Surge, and whatever the hell a medus is, or a medus, I don't know. Naturally, these kids aren't actually facing off against Apocalypse, this is just a danger room simulation. It gets several pages nonetheless in order to show us that Hope is uh, attempting to follow in the footsteps of her fallen foster father, Cable. And uh, it does offer Glob Herman the opportunity to yell, it's Globerin time, which I kinda like. We later join her sitting up against a tree with her thoughts. She's approached by Bishop, and I tell you what, this is a scene I was actually looking forward to seeing play out. Now, if you have any familiarity with Hope and her origins, you'll know that the entire second volume of Cable was predicated on, on Cable himself raising Hope and leaping through time in order to evade Bishop. Now, Bishop kind of lost his mind at the end of... I want to say Second Coming. Uh, It might have been... No, I don't think it was Messiah Complex. I think it was Second Coming. Whichever one introduced Hope as, you know, the first mutant back uh, post-House of M. Now, he, Bishop, saw Hope as a heretical figure who needed to die. And so he tried killing her for an entire 25-issue volume of Cable. And here, we've got them on panel together, perhaps for the first time as... Uneasy allies? I don't know. And boy, they whiff it pretty bad here. Um, Bishop tries telling Hope that he and Cable aren't all that different. And also that Nathan would be proud of her. She blows him off. Jean Grey approaches, who also blows Bishop off. And scene. That's it. That's really it. I, I guess that was worth looking forward to. I really, really expected more, considering the... The, just the twisted history these characters had together But, uh, felt like it was just getting lip service Like they felt like they had to include it And really just uh, left, left a lot of it on the table here Now the rest of our story here, as the title implies, is focused on Jean and Hope Now their greeting here is fairly contentious and awkward uh, Hope is still reeling from the loss of Cable, of course Jean reminds her that Cable was her sorta kinda son Hope attempts to excuse herself in order to clear out Cable's old safe houses, and Jean insists that they do this together. Hope still wants to do it alone, but eventually comes around to Jean's idea. It's worth noting, Hope shields herself from Jean's telepathy during this scene, uh, which makes me think that she probably had a bad run-in with young Jean at some point, because young Jean was uh, a little fast and loose with the the morality of uh, invading minds here, where older Jean... While she knows that Hope is blocking her, doesn't outright go into her mind. At least, uh, as far as we know. Now we jump to Cable's safe house number one, which is located in Hell's Kitchen. Ho- Jean and Hope are shocked to find that someone has beaten them to the punch, and it's Deadpool. And so they fight for a little bit, and Hope assumes that Wade is here to just steal all of Cable's doodads and whatnots. Well, we actually find out that uh, he stole Cable's body eventually, and he made it into a pool table. But that's a discussion that we've already had in episode—I don't know, one of the 90s. <laughs> the issue, uh, the issue of Cable, where uh, where he needs the the time machine in Cable's, uh, in older Cable's arm. Now, Deadpool assures the ladies that he would never do this. He would never steal from his pal. He reminds them that, at least in the most recent years, he's probably been Cable's closest and bestest friend. And as such, they had a death pact. Now, if either of them were to perish, the other would, uh, you know, quote-unquote, clear their browser history, so to speak. So, he was just doing the unfortunate cleanup that comes with losing a friend. He does admit that he would... Be taking one thing back with him, and that's a portable coffee mug that uh, keeps coffee hot even in the age of apocalypse, which is kind of cute. Now, as he goes to leave, he whispers into Hope's ear that uh, you know he knows why she's really here, and uh, he tells her that she won't find what she's looking for. He then tells the gals that the place is wired to blow, suggesting that they uh, you know skedoo pretty quick. Next stop, safe house number nine, located in the Adirondack Mountains. Here we get a sight gag of Hope wearing some of Cable's Liefeldian shoulder pads, and it's kind of cute. Uh, a nice little commentary on costuming, because she's like, I, I can't believe he ever wore this stuff, and Jean's like, it's like, well, just wait ten years and see what you were wearing now and see how that holds up. So, without being too dismissive of, you know, LOL 90s, it, it's nice to see that they just mentioned that, you know, styles and fashions change I, I like that, it's uh, respectful of, uh, of the material From here we go to safe house number 12 Located on Muir Island And here, Hope discovers that Cable had a safe house That she didn't even know existed One located in Cooperstown, Alaska Now this is safe house number 13 And it's right where the X-Men discovered Hope During, you know, Second Coming or Messiah Con- I think it was Second Coming Um... It's at this safe house where Hope finally founds what it is that she's been looking for. And if you guessed that it was a time machine, because, well, of course it is, uh, you'd be right. Now, Jean's all, no, 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 because, I mean, didn't we just tie up some time travel shenanigans with the original five? Do we really want to open that kettle of fish again? Probably not. Anyway, Hope and Jean fight a little bit. And it's basically just Hope lashing out, dealing with her grief here. Uh, she finally collapses, knowing that Jean is right. And so she destroys the time machine. That's kind of extreme. I mean, may- maybe don't destroy the thing, just maybe don't use it. Oh well. Now, something I've neglected to mention uh, throughout this story is the fact that Hope keeps bringing up how, try as she might, she can't even picture Cable's face anymore. Feels a little bit far-fetched, and definitely like a call-ahead to what will be our very predictable ending. But I gotta mention it, since it is how we wrap up the story. Gene gives Hope a telepathic vision of Cable. So, that's that. That is the end of the Hope and Gene story. Our backup is a Cyclops and Corsair story. Written by Chris Claremont, with art by Ramon Rezanis. Cull is Nolan Wooded, and led his VCs, Joe Sabino, edits, same folks. Now this one, this one's pretty weird. Um, now it's full of uh, Summer's family stuff, and it's being narrated by Cable, who can apparently remember every single thing that happened ever in his life. He's only an infant in this story, but he can recall every detail of what happened during it. I'm not sure if this is a power that Cable has that I'd forgotten about, or maybe Cable's been journaling or dictating into an AI dictionary since the day he was born? I don't know. Whatever the case, let's get to it. We see Madeline Pryor holding baby Nathan. She's surrounded by Havoc, Polaris, Corsair, Corsair's parents, and a very aloof and distant-looking Scott Summers. It's worth noting that we're told here that Nathan, baby Nathan, was named after his great-grandfather, which isn't the case at all. His great-grandfather's name is Philip. Now, it was revealed during Inferno that Nathan was chosen, the name Nathan was chosen by Maddie due to that being the same name of a boy who bullied Scott in the orphanage. His name was Nathan as well. Also, I mean, eventually, her own creator, Mr. Sinister, is is a Nathan as well. So, Claremont, come on. Come on, buddy. Now, everyone in the family sees that Scott's acting strange, but everyone is afraid to confront him over it. Corsair is eventually chatted up by his father, not Nathan, but Philip, and is told that he'd best talk to his boy. And so we shoot over to Scott and Maddie's Alaskan chalet, and we see that things aren't so swell in the summer house. Maddie and the baby are sleeping in bed, Scott has taken up uh, slumbering on the couch. So we've definitely got some marital strife here. No pun intended. Early that morning, Chris gets up and invites Scott to go on a walk with him. Scott ain't feeling it, but uh, Chris is insistent, and so Scott does what his father says. While walking, we get the quick and dirty on Scott's origin. Now, if you remember, he was uh, chucked out of a plane with only his little brother in a burning parachute to uh, slow his fall. He manifested his mutant power on the descent, saving both of their lives. He wound up in a coma for a year, and he woke up with a sort of a Swiss cheese memory. Then, he was dropped into the home for foundlings. He knew that he had a brother, but his brother had already been adopted. Scott was all by his lonesome. Now, Scott asks his father why he tossed him out of the ship, which is a dumb question, but it facilitates the quick and dirty on Corsair's own origin. You see, the Shi'ar captured him, killed his wife, enslaved him, and then Starjammers. Scott admits that he's scared of having the responsibility of a family. Well, hold that thought, Scott, because suddenly there's an earthquake Hepsibah holograms in to let them know that Maddie and the baby are currently in a bad way The Summers men rush up the hill to see that Madeline has been pinned under a fallen tree She cries out for help, not for herself, though, just for her baby, who she is still clutching onto Without thinking, Scott leaps across the divide in the land And it's almost like we're suddenly on the edge of a cliff or something I don't know what the topography of this area is, but it's very, very bizarre. Whatever the case, Scott somehow cracks his head open in the process. He attempts to save his wife and child, but only manages to shake the ground under them loose to the point where they both—they all fall from the cliffside. So, Scott does the same thing he did when he and little Alex were falling out of the plane, and he uses his optic blast to slow their fall. They land safely, and everything's hunky-dory. We wrap up back at the chalet. Maddie's leg is all bandaged up, but she, Scott, and Nathan are all in the family bed together. Cable is still narrating, and he mentions that this is when he knew that Scott would be a great husband and father. So I guess Cable never read X-Factor number one then. Well, that's where we leave it. That is the end of X-Men colon the Exterminated. Next episode, we wrap up the x the Nation series with more Cyclops in Uncanny X-Men Annual number one. And that is, of course, the most recent Uncanny X-Men Annual since there have been like a half dozen of them in the past ten years. So, the latest one, the Ed Brisson one, the one that was associated with Uncanny X-Men Volume 5, <laughs> the one right before Hawksbox. that one. But... That's next week Let's talk about this week And Well, this was uh, This was not great <laughs> This was really uh, Not not all well that great here uh, Felt It felt like the classic Marvel Cash-in epilogue Right? I mean It's almost like they ran out of pages During Extermination And they had Maybe two or three pages of story They still wanted to tell But you can't sell two or three pages of story So you have to blow it up Into well, in this case, a uh, extra-sized $5 uh, one-shot. So we get the Hope and Gene story, which certainly didn't feel like it needed the amount of pages it got, and really didn't feel like it did a whole lot, besides facilitate that final panel where Hope and Gene are walking towards the horizon and there's a big vision of Cable, uh, you know, in the sky. Uh, that seemed to be it. You could have just done that as a, as a one-off panel. But, uh, no, we needed the story here. Um, I mean, it wasn't a bad story It just didn't feel necessary I mean, I know characters like Cable kind of get a bad rap You know, for being uh, kind of uh, informative of an era That we all claim to be a little too smart for nowadays But, I mean, let's be real here Cable has been a character for 30 years You know, when Cable showed up, the X-Men were like just only 30 years old so he's been around a damn long time. I think he deserved a uh, maybe something a little bit better than, than this sort of melancholy, passive sort of uh, eulogy. I, 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 I get why they would use Hope, and I certainly get why they would use Gene, because they're both like sorta, kinda Cable's family, but not exactly, right? Gene is sorta Cable's mom, and Hope is sorta Cable's daughter. So they do have uh, sort of parallels, I guess, in their relationship with uh, Nathan. But I think I would have, I would have liked to see some X Force in here. I would have liked to see Domino. How does Domino react to this? How, do, how does you know Boom Boom and Cannonball? How do they react to this? This whole thing just felt very half-hearted. Um, didn't stick the landing And certainly didn't live up to uh, The five issues that came before it The extermination series was Was really really good in my opinion Where this I don't want to say it felt phoned in But it felt like Well we have to deal with this So how do we deal with it Without on the Boat uh, you know, as, With on the Boat as little as possible Because maybe they didn't know Where they were going from there I, I really don't know just felt half-hearted. You're speaking of half-hearted. The bishop and hope uh, scene uh, early in the story felt just like such a missed opportunity. I, I got to admit that I was on hiatus, so I don't know if Hope and Bishop had crossed paths before this in any sort of meaningful way. I don't know if they had it out. I don't know if Hope ran up to him and beated him on the ch- you know beat him on the chest and and cursed him for following them through ch- chasing them through time. I don't know if that scene happened, but I think I I, I think I would have liked to see that here because we've got Hope lashing out at Gene, you know, throughout this story. But when Bishop comes, it's just like, eh, it's just some guy. It, it felt, and again, I was on hiatus, so this very well might have been handled somewhere else. I just feel like. I felt like it was a little too passive aggressive, considering their history. and I feel like uh, like bishops telling her that cable would be proud would be kind of a slap in the face. It's like, you know, dude, you wanted us both dead so you don't get to say his name you know something like that, but it was just like a yeah beat it, you know, just didn't really ring true to me. um more about hope here. she's been kind of slotted into a into like a utility character in the current books, uh, the Hox Pox books here. She's a member of the Five, of course. She's, uh, you know, in large part responsible for the resurrection protocols being a thing that happens here. Has she crossed paths with Kid Cable? That's something I wonder. Uh, and again, I was on hiatus, so I don't know if they had a scene where they had it out. But it seems weird that she would uh, just. Be totally cool living on the same island as the guy who killed her father. And again, this might have been settled, but I just don't know it. So we'll uh, we'll work on that as we as we go along here. I appreciated the Deadpool uh, moment. I like the idea of him and Cable having this pact where, you know, if one of them were to go, the other one is on damage control. The other one is taking care of business and, and kind of wiping the slate clean. So. Any secrets don't get, you know, don't get out. Loved ones don't get attacked. It's it's smart, uh, and it's definitely something I could see them doing, even though, you know, they didn't always see eye to eye. they I think they did see value in each other, and they did have a measure of trust in one another. Uh, Wade himself mentions that Cable has provided that service for him multiple times already in times that Wade was thought to be dead. So I like that. I do like the Cable and Deadpool friendship. I, I think that's... Uh, that's one of the uh, maybe more underrated uh, bits Of uh, of mid-2000s X-Men comics That uh, that weird Cable and Deadpool series uh, That Fabian Niciasa did It was a lot of fun And uh, it was awkward But I think that kind of fed into the fun I really, really dug that And I feel like that was a really good use of characters That were kind of on the outs at that point It was just like... There wasn't much of an appetite for cable, and and Deadpool, at this point, Deadpool couldn't carry an ongoing. So, I, I think that was a nice use for both of them, keeping them both kind of bebopping around, and uh, and doing it in a very uh, novel and fun way. I suppose we could talk about the prospect of Hope traveling through time to to save Cable. Um, I think with that, it's, no pun intended, it's all about timing, right? I mean, we just sent back the original five, so we know what mucking around with the time stream can do. So I think this was a really opportune time to uh, present Hope with that sort of quandary, where, you know, do you do it? And if you do that, what else might happen? And Gene trying to explain that to Hope as Hope is just... You know, she's going through the Kubler-Ross thing here She's just, she's bargaining She's in denial She's trying to find ways to get out of her grief, right? Instead of processing it She wants to just, you know, put a cork on it And make everything better again And that's all she sees All she sees is she wants her, you know, her foster father back She doesn't know what sort of Pandora's box she might be opening in the process Because she's just not there yet You know, she her mind is wrapped up in the gratification and the satisfaction and the comfort of making things the way they were before Kid Cable came and uh, and took everything away. So I like that. I like that here. So this wasn't a bad story. The story, uh, for the most part, the art was good. Um, There were some weird faces, especially toward the end, but uh, not a bad story. Just certainly a little bit of a letdown compared to the rest of the extermination series and as a as kind of tying a bow on old man cable at least for the for the for the media, the immediate future kind of a letdown kind of a letdown uh, let's hop over to the second story here, the Cyclops and Corsair story which I really don't even know what to say about it because. I can't place the story. I can't place it. And one of the things that I really, really appreciated about the Extermination series was... Um, in the first issue, Ed Brisson wrote a little bit at the end. And he said, "He's like, hey guys, your back issues matter. Your back issues matter here. This This story is going to respect that and appreciate that. And everything is going to make sense. Here, we've got a weird scene... Where with cable, uh, with, uh, with, Cy- uh, with Scott and Madeline, where I just can't place it. And it was a little saccharine, a little syrupy. It was actually very syrupy. I really just don't understand. I don't understand why this was needed. Um, I feel like, you know, Cyclops has kind of uh, become identified. By the fact that he left his family in X Factor uh, in the in the early issues of X Factor back in the '80s, which it's kind of like the uh, the old sitcom thing, you know. It's you think about a sitcom where, and I and I've used this this uh, example before, where one of the characters is portrayed as being a neat freak in the first couple seasons, but then in the fifth and sixth season, all they all they're doing is running around with a dustbuster. You know, they've taken any kind of subtlety out of it And they just become the caricature In comics, we've got characters like Over at DC, we got Roy Harper Speedy What are some facts about Speedy? What are some facts about Speedy? Oh yeah, he's addicted to heroin He's a junkie That's become his defining characteristic Let's think about Hank Pym What do we got about Hank Pym? Oh, he beat his wife Okay, so every story has to be about Hank Pym having beaten his wife. Cyclops, it's a little bit more subtle. It's a little less one-to-one, but it's like when you think about Cyclops, and if you're knowledgeable about Cyclopsian history, it's like, oh yeah, he abandoned his family. I feel like there's been an effort to kind of change the narrative on that a little bit. I think with retcons and retroactive continuity... And the fact that we've made it so Madeline is less of an innocent victim in the uh, in the abandonment It feels like an orchestrated way to make it seem like, hey, Cyclops ain't that bad a dude And, I mean, Cyclops is my favorite character But still, you know, I understand that he's flawed I understand that he made bad decisions. I understand that he acted on emotion and perhaps libido <laughs> on, on several occasions, rather than rationality and responsibility. But I feel like there's just this concentrated effort to assuage him of that guilt, which I, it feels untrue to the character. Here, I mean, we have we have Cable as a baby talking up what a great father and a great husband Cyclops is and and always will be, and that's just not true, right? I mean, and we can talk until we're blue in the face about the specifics of him leaving. You know, of him leaving uh, Madeline and Nathan back in X-Factor number one. Did he know that Gene was alive? We don't know. We don't know. All we know is that Warren said, hey, get over here you know Warren called him and and Scott Scott's reply was something along the lines of I can't believe it. Did was he told that uh that Gene was back or just that there were there was big news? We don't know. So we don't know why he left. I think deep down we do, but again, the there's been an effort to change that, to modify that. It's more about Scott um Scott feeling beholden to the X-Men and to mutant kind, rather than him running back to his formerly, you know, assumed dead girlfriend. And that makes Madeline seem maybe not so much irrational, but maybe a little unfair, right? It makes Scott more sympathetic than had he just been like, oop, my girlfriend's back, see ya, this is... Oh, the mutants need me, my people need me, the X-Men need me And while there's certainly truth to that, I mean, that is part of it, for sure Madeline was annoyed that he was always at the beck and call of the X-Men When the X-Men had a very, very solid lineup at this point They didn't necessarily need him And, I mean, he did just lose to Storm while she was depowered in X-Men, in Uncanny 201 So, I mean, there is definitely something to that but here I feel like we're we're kind of like protesting too much, where it's just oh he's a devoted husband and a wonderful father and uh, sorry Claremont I'm not buying it I'm not buying it I don't know what's uh, being mandated I don't know if this is supposed to because we got to we got to remember that at the end of extermination number five Cyclops is back right he, the the adult Cyclops is back. It, And he had just been put through the ringer here. So, in addition to abandoning his family in X Factor, uh, he also was a Dark Phoenix. He killed Professor X. He went on a revolution. He, uh, what the people think, he attacked the Inhumans. He was dead. It was a, it was character assassination. It was just not, it was not the best time to be Cyclops or a Cyclops fan. So. I don't know if this story was here as a way to maybe shine a different, shine maybe a softer light on him and make him seem a bit more relatable, make him seem more sympathetic, make him more fan friendly, Uh, maybe try to shed a little bit of his emotional and um, inconvenient baggage before uh, reestablishing him as a featured character in the, in the X-Men books again After being gone for a little while Don't know what the case is I, you know, I mean What choice do I have but to accept it <laughs> Because it just is what it is But uh It really kind of rang Untrue to me A little insincere And uh The fact that it's that it's Chris Claremont Kind of going against Things that he had originally wrote Whether they were planned that way or not I don't know, just doesn't really jive for me And I also just don't think it was a necessary story I don't think this was a necessary story We could have gotten away with uh, With just the Hope eulogy Maybe throw an X-Force eulogy in there I just don't think we needed this story Just uh, really didn't have much of a reason to exist But Those are my thoughts On the two stories in X-Men colon The Exterminated I look forward to hearing your thoughts on these stories. Uh, do you agree? Do you disagree? Uh, do you feel like they, uh, they did service to the Extermination event miniseries? Or was this just another $5 cash-in from our friends at Marvel? <laughs> Please feel free to let me know. You can find me very, very easily. I'm on Twitter at Ace Comics. Or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. You can find blog posts and show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearth We also have xlabs dot dot com. You can join the conversation at Facebook, where uh, we're we're getting new members for the first time in a long time. So thank you all for uh, for signing in and uh, and hanging out with us. Our little group is '90s X Men, and of course you can hear over five hundred episodes at the Chris and Reggie channel at chrisandreggie well, that'll do it for our penultimate episode of x Nation. Just one more to go, and we will be reintroduced to Cyclops next time. So I'd like to thank you all so, so much for sharing your time and allowing me to be part of your day. Until next time, as always, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. This is Chris. Welcome to the eighth and final episode of x Labstination. We've covered the countdown, we covered the event mini-series, and now we're wrapping up the second of uh, two epilogues here. Uh, we are dipping into the volume of Uncanny X-Men that uh, I've since gone back and bought, but haven't read any of. So uh, this is uh, kind of exciting, I guess. Uh, I figured I'd probably have saved this for the... Uh, Eventual Uncanny X Lapsed program, but uh, looks like we're going to get there a little early for this one. This is the Uncanny X Men Annual, Volume 5, Number 1. This had a March 2019 cover date. The story's called The Return of Cyclops. So we we lost a Cyclops, and uh, well, we get a Cyclops back. Written by Ed Brisson, with art by Carlos Gomez, Colors, Guru EFX, Letters, VCs, Joe Caramagna, Edits, Robinson White, Sibolsky, Cover Price, five dollars and this one went on sale january twenty third of twenty nineteen. Alrighty, now after a single page spread of creds and recap, we arrive at Muir Island. Now the time is several weeks ago and we're at the gravesite of Scott Summers. There's a rumbling, and then an optic blast erupts from the grave. Cyclops in his horrible post AVX costume emerges from the ground as though he were Spider-Man during Craven's last hunt. But how and why has this happened? Well, to get that answer, we need to hop into Flashback Land. And uh, this is a subchapter that's called A Promise Made. Now here, the art style has changed pretty drastically. Uh, we've got, you know, Ben Day dots. It's clearly supposed to be a relic of the Silver Age. And uh, it'll become more and more apparent as we work our way through. Now, here, a younger Scott Summers is in Cambridge, Massachusetts, though he doesn't know why. You see, it's as though there was a voice in his head compelling him to come here, and, uh, well, we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a bit. Anywho, he winds up at, uh, I'm assuming Cambridge College, where a giant robot is currently on a rampage. Now, Scott changes into his blue and yellows, his early X-Men togs, and he begins zarking and shracking in the robot's direction. But it doesn't appear to do much damage. Now, that's because the robot's being controlled by this recently fired professor named Tavin Tierney. And, uh, he's wearing a ridiculous-looking metal helmet that's, uh, all the hoosie-whatsits are in. Well, after he rants a bunch to inform Cyclops that he is the true threat, it doesn't take long for our hero to simply zap the dopey helmet off the bad guy's dome. And in so doing, the rampaging robot slumps to the ground. After this, we get a bunch of silver agey post battle banter, you know, stuff like, hey, use X Men ain't all that bad, you know, stuff like that, that, you know, we used to see back in the day and whenever they're trying to call back to that time. Uh, Cyclops is then approached by a fella named Paul Duick. Now, he is very, very grateful for the save because, you see, Paul was the guy who turned Taven into the college and was ultimately responsible for his firing. Now, Taven knew this, and as such, this visit with the big robot was aimed toward exacting a measure of revenge against Paul. Now, Paul is newly married, and he has a baby on the way, so he is just so relieved that Cyclops was here to save his life. He promises if there's anything, anything in the world he can do to return the favor, that he will. Well, let's jump ahead a decade to another subchapter. This one's called A Favor Repaid. Now, we're in Boston, Massachusetts, at the home of an older and a little pudgier Paul Dewey. Now, he's up for a midnight snack, and, uh, well, he discovers he's not exactly alone in his kitchen because Kid Cable is there. Now, our boy rattles off all the measures he'd taken to assure that Paul can't call for help before laying everything out to him. You see, it's time to pay the piper, and, uh, the piper is Cyclops. Now, Cable drops a... Strange-looking device at Paul's feet. You see, this is a phoenix cage. He drops it on the kitchen floor and he tells Paul that he needs him to build him a new one. A much, much smaller one. Now, the phoenix cage, that was concocted during Avengers vs. X-Men as a way to attempt to contain the phoenix force, which was on its way to Earth. And it didn't really do the job. Cable is undeterred, though, as he has a plan. And likely a working knowledge of the opportunities the time stream might present for him to facilitate it. He gives Paul two years to do the thing, and body slides away. Next stop, your Island, two years later. Now this is a bit cold, the first time Scott Summers died. And this brings us to Death of X territory, which is that miniseries that led into IVX, and it's something that uh, I'm realizing more and more that I did not actually read. (laughs) Now, uh, the X-Men are holding a funeral for Cyclops. Now, off to the side, we can see that Kid Cable and Paul Dweck are also present, but they're, you know, out of view. Paul's upset at how much people now hated his hero, which, yeah, it really sucked the way they wrote Scott for a few years there, didn't it? Uh, character assassination before the ACTUAL assassination, in a way. Now, Cable and Paul then body-slide away into a morgue where the ACTUAL body of Cyclops currently resides. Now, you see, if you're not familiar with Inhumans vs. X-Men, well... A, you're lucky, and B, well, the whole thing was built on a bit of a ruse. Now, Cyclops, if I'm understanding or remembering this right, actually died relatively peacefully. As a result of the Terrigan Mists The Terrigan Mists were toxic to mutants They were killing mutants And that is how Cyclops actually died Now Emma Frost would then make it appear as though he didn't die And launched the attack on the boring ass in humans And in order to keep up the lie She used a Cyclops construct, right? And that construct was actually what was being buried at the funeral And not the actual Terrigan-ravaged body of Scott Summers Does that make sense? Uh, maybe, maybe not. You see, the one that died wasn't really Scott. Scott was already dead. Anywho, Cable tells Paul it's time to do the thing. And so they scalpel their way into Cyclops's heart and then plop in the teeny tiny phoenix cage that Paul had spent the last 700 or so days crafting. This brings us to several months ago and, quote, the second time Scott Summers died. Now, if you're familiar with the Sunday special series, this is a scene you'll be quite familiar with. It's right out of Phoenix Resurrection, The Return of Jean Grey number 5, so uh, Phoenix Resurrects lapsed, Episode 5 as well. In that issue, the Phoenix attempted to sway Jean into reclaiming her role as its host, and showed what the power could do in bringing the dead Cyclops back to life. Of course, she didn't take the bait, but was able to experience one final kiss and goodbye with the love of her life. Now here is where the Phoenix Cage implant comes into play. Now when the Phoenix brought Cyclops back to life for that brief time, the Cage was able to contain enough Phoenix energy to, well, really bring Cyclops back to life. Sort of like a jump start of the heart there. And so... We jump all the way back to our opening bit, with Cyclops dragging himself out of his own grave. He finds himself greeted by Kid Cable and Paul Duick. He's taken to one of Cable's safe houses, where he gets the opportunity to be part of a mutual admiration society with Paul for a bit. He also talks about his recent deaths. He remembers walking into the Muir Island lab and, uh, well, then nothing. So that's when he died. He also remembers bits of his ethereal reunion with Jean, and Paul is overjoyed that his gimmick worked and that he was finally able to return the favor for Scott. He tells him about his life. You know, he's married, he's got a son, and if not for Ca- uh, Cyclops saving him back at Cambridge, his wife would be a widow and his son would never know his father. And this really seems to affect our Scott. Now, one week later, Scott is in a much nicer costume. I believe this is the, uh, the John Cassidy Astonishing X-Men costume. And he is absolutely climbing the walls here. He is tired of being cooped up in the safe house. Now, Kid Cable tells him it's not, time, not quite time for him to redebut debut yet, uh, because he's just not ready. Cable then body slides away to attend to, well, the event miniseries we've been discussing here for the past couple of months. We jump ahead another week later, and Professor Taven is being released from prison. He arrives home and heads into his little basement lab or whatever, and he finds a little note posted among his belongings, and... it's Paul Dueck's address. Uh Uh-oh. Who could have planted that there? Huh. Maybe the person who's orchestrated this entire thing? Yeah, we'll see. Let's go back to the safe house, where we pick up right at the end of extermination number five. Cable tells Cyclops everything that went down. You know, the time displaced original five are back home, and old man Cable has been retired. You know, he's got to keep the timeline in order and all that, which Cyclops kind of points out the, hip- hip- the hypocrisy in here, considering how Kid Cable's been more or less playing God for this entire series. Cable said he only did what he did Because it wasn't right the way that Cyclops died Cyclops didn't die leading his team He didn't die on, in battle He you know, he succumbed to an editorial fiat To make the Inhumans more popular uh, um, he, he died from the Terrigan Mists uh, Cyclops tells him that uh, he was right to do what he did Though he might just be a little bit biased Given the context and how it's his life that was saved Now, before Cyclops can re-debut Cable needs him to prove something to him. And so, he's presented with two options. Because right this very minute, there are two threats. One faces the X-Men, and I'm going to assume this is that whole X-Men disassembled thing that I know very little about. But uh, X-Men is involved in it. Uh, the other is Professor Taven and his robots are heading to Paul Duick's house to raise a bit of hell. And, you know, kill him and his family. Cyclops can only help one, and he's gotta choose quick. And he winds up saving the Duick family. Luckily, Professor Taven is still using the same dopey ass helmet to control his bots, so it's a pretty easy win for all Slim. We wrap up the following day on a beach on Quadra Island in British Columbia, Canada. Cyclops reflects on uh, well, how much he hates beaches, because AVX started on a beach, he killed Professor X on a beach, and now the X-Men were whisked away to the age of X-Men on a beach. He talks a bit about how wrong he was to be the mutant revolutionary for, well, much of the 2010s. And yeah, I I agree, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit. And we close with him vowing to find any remaining X-Men and to set everything right. And that's that. You know, I was hoping there'd be a whole lot more to talk about with this issue, uh, but, uh... There really isn't all that much here. Um I will say and this and this is something I've mentioned just about every episode so far. Uh, Ed Brisson wrote in his uh opening missive here that our back issues are gonna matter, right? This entire story was going to use continuity and use it to uh to explain the story, to let to let the to let it inform the way the story goes here, and he does that. He does that here. Uh Calling back to the Phoenix Cage as a gimmick, um, using the scene from Phoenix Resurrection in here—it was all very, very well done, and I think it was done probably as about about as well as it could be done in order for it to uh, to do service to the story and not and not feel just like, like a like a cop out like we get so often these days. I mean, current year is an era where. Characters come back simply because the writer forgot they died, or because enough time has passed where they figure they don't have to explain how they're not dead anymore, you know? So it's nice to see that, uh, that we do get an explanation here, and it's an explanation that in comic terms actually makes a measure of sense here. The phoenix basically jump-started his heart, and he's, he's back, right, um... I really can't uh when you're dealing with the Phoenix here, it's hard to poke holes in anything because the Phoenix can be pretty much whatever you need it to be. And here, you know it was a uh, it was definitely a plot device, but it was a plot device that uh, that worked and played with the past several years worth of stories and had them all retroactively build to this uh, to this resurrection of Cyclops here. And I think it was pretty well done. I think it was pretty well done. Really no complaints about it. Uh, a little underwhelming Because I thought there'd be something A little less, uh, magic-y about it A little less Like I said, I mean, the phoenix can do whatever you need the phoenix to do So I think I was hoping for it to be a little bit A little bit more creative than that But I mean, given the circumstances Like I said, I can't complain It's, you know, it, it makes sense in the terms of, uh Of comics Um, Let's talk a little bit about the manipulation here in story. We open with Cyclops saying that he, uh... In the flashback to the Silver Age, Where he feels like he was compelled to come to Cambridge College. Which makes me think that this entire thing Has been manipulated from by Kid Cable from the start. Which makes me wonder, like... Like, couldn't there have been an easier way to do this? You know, um... If Cyclops shouldn't have died, you'd almost think, like... Maybe Cable would have just, like, pulled Cyclops off-planet before he, you know, succumbed to the, uh... To the Terrigan Mists? I... I don't know. Seems like we're, we're taking, like, the extremely scenic route here. Unless, of course, Cyclops would have had to have died in order to set up whatever chain of events led to the original five going back the way that they did. I mean... That seems, like, almost too rigid. And, I mean, we're dealing with time travel and all that kind of crap here, so, I mean, that's all wibbly-wobbly as it is, but it's very, very rigid if we have to assume that every single thing that happened here had to happen the way it did rather than just plucking Cyclops off-planet for a minute when uh, you know when the Terrigan mists were spreading to, uh, to save or, or prolong his life. Don't know, it just seems kind of complicated, but... Part of me really, really respects that because they I talk a lot about writers and their inability or unwillingness to play the ball where it lies or play the the cards that they're dealt or whatever however you want to say it and here uh Brisson does play the cards he was dealt you know there's a s there's a whole story here with the original five time displaced kids and uh and maybe that all had to happen the way it did in order for this story to Go the way they needed it to go Or, I, like, I don't know what happens In the next uh, arc of Uncanny X-Men I've never read it, so Maybe we're going to find out more reasons Why everything had to go precisely as it did Then again, maybe we won't It's a different person writing those uh, those seri- those stories That's uh, Rosenberg, not, uh, not Brisson But you never know, right? Um, let's keep it with Kid Cable here uh, His whole gimmick here is that he took out his older self for being irresponsible with the time stream. Well, <laughs> a, little, a little a little, hypocritical, right? I mean, the fact that Kid Cable... Did, I mean, I'm almost certain that he orchestrated this entire thing. He made sure that Paul Dewey owed Cyclops a favor. Because maybe in the Marvel Universe before that, maybe Paul duick is killed by uh, Professor Taven and his robot. I just don't know. I'm pretty sure these are new characters who we've never seen before and will probably never see again. But uh, maybe, with Kid Cable, making sure Cyclops is there, it's it's putting everything in place. Which, I mean, that, that could affect the timeline. That could affect the time stream, right? Having someone who should have been dead back, Cyclops who was supposed to be dead back, Seems kind of sloppy and a little hypocritical For him putting a uh, You know, taking out his older self For the very same reason Just being being a little sloppy Being a little irresponsible I do wonder You know, at the end of the issue Or toward the end of the issue Cyclops is presented with two options He could either save the X-Men From going to the age of X-Men Or being sw- swept away To the other dimension Or he can Save Paul Doick again I don't understand Why this needed to be a thing Maybe I'm just dense Maybe I'm missing The bigger picture here I don't know what exactly Cyclops had to prove By saving Paul instead of the X-Men I don't know What would have been the right answer What would have been the wrong answer I don't know how Cable is measuring Whether or not one of those answers is right or wrong It's just very very strange to me And the fact that, I mean, Cable orchestrated this as well. We have to assume that he left the note in Taven's laboratory with Paul's address. It's just so weird. I don't know why that was necessary. And again, I might just be dense here. Maybe it's completely, plainly obvious. I I just don't see it. It feels to me like a very manufactured and artificial... I can't even call it a morality test because they're... I don't know that there is a wrong answer here. You're either saving your friends or you're saving this guy. You're saving someone. You're being selfless. You're you're losing something and saving something, no matter what you choose. If he saved the X-Men, Paul would have died. He saved Paul, the X-Men were taken away. Very, very strange. I don't see what the point of it was. I really don't know. Now, one more thing I wanted to talk about before we go is uh, Cyclops's speech at the very end of the issue here, where he basically he calls himself out for how he's behaved ever since. Uh, boy, how far? How bar, How far back can we go? Uh, he was a mutant revolutionary before he died. Um, he killed Professor X. <laughs> he. Was a dark phoenix He fought with the Avengers He split off from Wolverine After, you know, not caring whether or not kids were in the line of fire He's had a pretty rotten stretch of years here And the speech he gives basically has him admitting that Has him coming to terms with that Has him vowing to be a better person from this point on And I like that. I like that because, you know, I, I, you know me, I'm a big fan of lore here good, bad, and ugly. I I want to, I want everything to count because I think everything should count. I did not like the way Cyclops was uh, portrayed uh, ever since Schism and even in the lead up to Schism. But I wouldn't want that to all go away, you know, and this is like a best of all world situation here where he he you know comes to terms with the fact that yeah he was he was kind of a, he was kind of a dick right but now he's going to be better i like the admission that he has just not been a very nice person he hasn't been a good leader he's been just he's really been in it for the wrong reasons i think that's a a really powerful page in that it uh, it pays tribute to those years it doesn't brush him under the rug But it uses those years as a learning experience, right? He knows he made mistakes. He knows he did things the wrong way. But now, he's going to be better. Now he's going to move forward. He's going to be the Cyclops of old, you know, instead of instead of being you know a a militant, uh, murderous psychopath. Now he's just a uh, a a guy who ditched his family or something. But uh, either way. I'm happy that he's back. I'm happy to finally know how he came back. And I'm happy that uh, I'm happy that this story did service to previous stories and didn't just didn't just draw a line under things, didn't just excise uh, inconvenient bits and pieces of history here. This accepts everything. It has all the baggage, but with a uh, like a like a fresh hope at the end of it, right? It's pretty well done. Pretty well done stuff, and it was uh, very pretty to look at. Uh, the art here was very, very nice. I loved, you know, hopping back into the Silver Age looking stuff here because it looked very much like a uh, like a modern take on a Silver Age book. It was very, very well done. Now, overall, this was a this is a very solid issue. Um, definitely a better epilogue than what we got last time with X Men: The Exterminated, which kind of. <laughs> wasn't the best thing in the world. This was a far better epilogue to um, what I found to be a very, very uh, well-done miniseries event here with Extermination. I'm very, very happy to have read this entire thing now, so I now know where the Time Displaced kids went. I know. I now know where Cyclops uh, was and how he came back. So I'd say overall this is a solid net positive in my uh, X-Lapsed reading Catch-up experience here, so very, very pleased that we did this. I hope you all enjoyed this as well. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can do so a few different ways. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, or you can shoot me an email over to weirdcomicshistory at gmail dot com. You can find blog blog posts and show notes. It's never easy for me to say <laughs> over at uh, ChrisIsOnInfiniteEarth dot com, also xlapsed dot dot com. You can talk to us about all the stuff on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men. And you can listen to everything from the Chris and Reggie channel over at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that will do it for the episode and the Sunday special series. Uh, Next time out here, not to date myself. I try not to date myself on the Sunday special, but here we are. Uh, we're going to be doing the epilogue to uh, Phoenix Resurrection next time out So we will be doing an unexpected surprise sixth episode of Phoenix Resurrects Lapsed Which I'm not sure I'm looking forward to Since it has to do with uh, a hot dog that tastes like bigotry But uh, we'll uh, we'll get there when we get there, won't we? <laughs> I would like to thank you all so much for joining me on this episode uh, very fun ride through a very fun event miniseries. It really, really means a lot to me. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you all again real soon. See ya.